Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Sophia. And I'm Sybil. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're continuing our musicals series with a stop in the golden age of musicals and a one-day trip in New York. We'll talk about romance with a sailor and whether we see the appeal of a man in uniform. And we'll discuss perhaps the greatest musical star and innovator of all time, Gene Kelly, as we talk about his 1949 directorial debut, On the Town. Sybil. Hello, Sophia. Hello, everyone. Hey, ladies, what's up? I'm I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling excited. It's spring. We're talking about musicals. And unlike our first musical, so our first musical we did was Top Hat. And that was an original musical written for the screen. But this week, we're finally mm-hmm. going to delve into a musical that was on Broadway first, like as a live musical. And it's interesting. I'm not sure if I've actually, other than high school productions, I don't think I've ever seen an actual professional musical. I've seen opera, but I, and I've seen plays, but I've never seen a musical. I want to know, like, have either of you been people who've gone to see musical theater? And like, what do you think about it versus watching a movie musical? Well, I go to, I fly to New York usually two to three times a year just to see Ooh. theater. <gasps> That's amazing. I know. Right? And I, ju- I just came back. Like I just came back and I saw three while I was there. Um, and then and then I keep, even though I currently live in Vegas, Los Angeles has amazing theater. Because if you think about it, especially musical theater, if you think about all the people who are talented there who are just like unemployed and mm-hmm. trying to get jobs, mm-hmm. LA has amazing theater, but LA people are, are TV and film people. So the theater is like $25 a seat. Wow. You get, I mean, we get like full on productions from New York that make it to LA and I'll have seen them in New York for 255 bucks for like a nosebleed. And then LA, I'll get it for like $30 for, you know, front and center orchestra. Amazing. Wow. What did you just see on Broadway? Um, 1776, uh, uh, Kimberly Akimbo, um, six and, oh, I've forgotten the last one I saw because it must not have been important to me. (laughs) (laughs) i you know i have to say while i've been watching these uh you know movie musicals a couple of them have been they came from broadway and i'm like Mm -hmm. oh i can't wait to see it and then the movie's fine but i'm like oh i really liked it on stage much better so i wonder about that it was on broadway putting it on as a movie versus like britain just to be you know, for film. So what do you, what do you think it is about the ones on the stage that you liked better? Is it that they use different songs? Cause sometimes those get changed or is it just the energy you like better? What do you think it might be? Both of that. There were, you know, just having different songs. I'm like, Oh, I wish that. Oh, I like that. The original, why wasn't that there? And, uh, and I do think the energy is, yeah, di- very different. I also feel that, that when you watch a movie, even if it's like a real recording of it, either way, that you are being told what to notice via the direction. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're watching it on stage, you're noticing what you want to watch. You're your own director. Mm, I like that. 
Like yeah, that that's true. I think like in some cases, like can be an advantage of movie musicals too, though, because like some, if you have a really good director who knows where to put your attention, like that's telling a story in itself, like where the camera is being put. It really depends though, you know, whether it's a it director or not. Uh, I think that the other thing is one of the problems I've had while, while I've watched theater is not that something that I saw from the theater to like a film I've had as much trouble pr- pr- trouble with, but I have had a lot of trouble over the years. Anything that was like a movie first that then they tried to adapt mm. into theater. Oh, mm. I, I just like, I'm like, this is terrible and I can't even watch this crap. Wow. Okay. And I think one of the major reasons is my philosophy on musicals, and I might have talked about this before on a podcast with y'all. And my philosophy on musicals is that the music, the reason why you have a song are for two reasons. One, something is so intense that you cannot speak it in words, that you have mm-hmm. to sing it. Or two, you are going to move the plot along. And so this song is telling you information quicker in a song than it could in dialogue. Yeah, mm. yeah. And it, a lot of times I find that with movies, they make these songs because like, oh, this is where a song should be. I'm like, but this isn't an important song. Why are we singing about sneakers? Who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, like, I just find that to be tr- so true of like stuff that's been adapted from film to the stage. Well, yeah, I guess that would make sense because in the film, they didn't have music in the film. They didn't need it. So right. yeah, it's just, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. And I don't have this experience, so I can't really input much into this uh, conversation. But One of this that does this very well is Mean Girls. It's absolutely fantastic. The Both the stage production, which I actually like even more than the movie, wow. does such a good job taking that, like what's important in the movie and bringing it as lyrics and dialogue cool. into, mm-hmm. yeah, into the musical. I can't speak highly enough about Mean Girls. It's so good. I don't know if this if this has tainted you, Jen. Like, okay, I got to study in London, and we watched all kinds of theater. That was part of the thing, Um, and we got to see Oklahoma. And Mm -hmm. man, up until we got there, I was like, Oklahoma. It like all I'd ever seen was high school productions of (laughs) Oklahoma. Okay, we get there, and it was freaking magical it was so beautiful a real orchestra real singers and dancers and stuff like that it was it was just the greatest so if you remember things from high school you know. oh no it's not even like i didn't like the things in high school it's just okay. like i haven't used the money i've had in my life to like go to live performances all that much yeah, I mean, and I've spent a lot of my time making theater too, which I actually kind of enjoy making theater more in some ways. So, yeah, and I guess musicals too. Like, I thought of myself as a person who liked musicals, but then when I started preparing for this musical series, I was like, oh shit, I've actually I've seen like about ten musicals dozens of times, and then I've missed out on like a <laughs> yeah. whole lot of the music, the history of musical theater. And so I've been just like educating, educating myself now, mm-hmm. like getting caught up with things. So, yeah. Any other favorite music, live musical productions from either of you? I mean, there's so many. I know. There's so many. Let's just talk about Hamilton. We could talk about that forever. Whereas I I hated them. Like I hated the movie version on Disney, which is how most people have seen it. And live, it's absolutely incredible. Wow. That's interesting. Mm. Because I tried to watch it on Disney and I couldn't get into it. So there's too many close shots. There's too many close up shots. Um, Hamilton is it's designed around a stage that moves and the stage itself and all the dancers that are supporting mm-hmm. are are the th- things that move it along. Okay. And so I think if you're if you saw the Disney version yeah. that was just it's so many close up shots you don't get enough like width 
of the stage. You don't sure. have that, you know, breadth of information. Sure. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Cause like, I was like, just not into it and I didn't understand the phenomenon, but maybe it's because I didn't have that experience. So Five. good to know. So but before we get started today, a few notes. First, as usual, there will be a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we will warn you when the spoilers are about to start. We'd also like to remind you that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom, and our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, if you'd like to help us keep the podcast going, we now have a Buy Me a Coffee page at buymeacoffee.com slash everyromcom. We'll put a link to that page in the show notes. And just big thanks in advance to anyone who's willing to show us some support. And now we will listen to part of the trailer for On the Town. <laughs> Many famous museums in the big town, our studious friends find interesting and edifying knowledge. happy gobs and three happy girls walk merrily toward the setting sun. We reluctantly say farewell to them and hello to Metro Golden Mares on the town. Three smart gals and three slick fellas. We're gonna pay the rent. Fill them up and then drink them down. such a cheesy trailer oh my gosh <laughs> and there's a whole beginning section with just that weird narrator guy like um say talking about their trip and then it's like ironic images behind it basically so yeah way to go way to go narrator dude that's funny um on the town came out december 30th 1949 and it's written by adolf green betty comden and jerome robbins it was directed by Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly. It's starring Gene Kelly, Vera Allen, 
Frank Sinatra, Betty Garrett, Jules Munchen, and Anne Meller. And the music is by Leonard Bernstein, with additional music by Roger Edens. Adolph Green and Betty Comden wrote lyrics for both. Yeah. All right. Right on. All right. So the basic premise is this. Three sailors arrive in New York for a day on shore. So like they have their shore leave. Ozzy and Gabe, who are super into like meeting women because, hey, they're sailors. Then we have Chip, who just wants to go sightseeing. While riding the subway, Gabe sees a very be- like beautiful poster with Ivy Smith, who is known as Miss Turnstile, and becomes obsessed with meeting her. Like he's like super obsessed. When they get off the subway, they immediately see <gasps> Ivy in real life, and she's having her picture taken. And she looks like a movie star. And so Gabe, who is like too stunned to actually talk to her, he decides that he's going to make it his mission to go on a date with her. So he's going to go like stalk her and find her essentially. While helping Gabe find Ivy, the other men meet their own kind of girls. So we have Ozzy meets Claire, who's an anthropology student. And Chip is pursued by Hildy, who is a cab driver. Ozzy and Claire and Chip and Hildy split up so that Gabe can continue a search for Miss Turnstile. But everyone agrees that they're going to meet at the top of the Empire State Building at 830. Which can I go ahead and put in here at this point? Be like, is that the first time that happened in any movie ever? Yeah, I couldn't I didn't do research on it, but I feel like but I feel like that's such a trope and I don't know if there's an earlier example of it or not. Yeah, because I you you'd mentioned that and I was like, you're absolutely right. That is such a, like a trope, but is it a trope because of this? Because then there's an affair to remember. Yeah. But that's after this, I think, right? Yeah, Am it I is right? totally. Me... I didn't even think of it. I didn't until Jen mentioned it. And I was like, that's so true. Mm-hmm. Nice. Okay, so there's so many interesting facts to know about this movie. Um, First, let's just put it in its place in American musical history. So according to Red Hot and Blue, a Smithsonian salute to the American musical, the era beginning in 1943 with the stage version of Oklahoma was the beginning of the golden age of the American stage and movie musical. And that lasted about through the late 1950s, or some will say the 1960s. And it's kind of called the golden age because there were a ton of musicals coming out during that time. They, they were both on stage and on screen. They had really great cultural relevance at the time. And they were starting to make sort of innovations in the genre and making it so that the movies, the music in the movies was more seamless with the stories and also adding more of a dance element integrated into the movies. So yeah, this was a really creative time for this genre. And On the Town came right at the beginning of it, basically. As we mentioned, On the Town was first a Broadway musical. It began its run in December 1944, which was still during World War II. So the cultural context of it then was a little different than when it, when it reached the screen. And it ran for 462 performances until February 1946. It ended up grossing more than $2 million, and it would eventually be re- revived on Broadway in 1972, 1998, and 2014, and it was also put on in London in 2017. So it's had a lot of different um, showings of On the Town. Also, it made, I mean, for a first run, 462 days, that's, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, I don't really know how to compare it, but it sounded good. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like Phantom Cat's Land. <laughs> Phantom Cat, I was imagining that as one musical now. I know what you mean, but <laughs> okay. That's awesome. So, um on the Town was written, as we mentioned, by Jerome Robbins, Adolph Green, and Betty Comden. And Green and Comden, the writers, also played Ozzy and Claire in the Broadway version of the musical. So they were quite versatile people. 
The music for the musical was by Leonard Bernstein and choreography by Jerome Robbins. And the Broadway musical had a lot of interesting things that we actually don't see in the movie. So the Broadway musical had an integrated cast, which was a big deal at the time, including in a lead role. So Ivy slash Miss Turnstiles was played by Japanese-American dancer Sono Osato. And like, keep in mind, again, this was during World War II. So that was Mm -hmm. a big deal. Yeah. And then six of the 56 cast members were black. And the... And the musical included at least one scene of a black and white dancer dancing together. So that was a big deal. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't like leave that for the film. It kind of makes me sad that they didn't. We'll we'll get there. I'm sure. sure. (laughs) We'll get there in just a moment. Yeah. Um, The Broadway show also featured the first black conductor to regularly conduct a Broadway show. Leonard Bernstein asked conductor Everett Lee to conduct the show starting in September of 1945. Wow, that's also huge. Wow. Yeah. So let's see, Gene Kelly was still in the Navy when he called producer Arthur Freed to suggest making On the Town into a movie. And he found out that MGM had already bought the rights. Um, but, and here's, here we come to the changes, Louis B. Mayer, the studio head, was not happy about some aspects of the show. He didn't like that it was racially integrated, and he didn't like some of the movie's sexual innuendo. So, so many changes were made. And then because of Gene Kelly's interest, the story was also changed to make Gabe more of a main character in the story. And then more changes were made to the music because Mayer and I think also producer Arthur Freed found that Bernstein's music was too sophisticated for movie audiences. So the Bernstein songs, which remain in the movie, are I Feel Like I'm Not Out of Bed Yet, New York, New York, Miss Turnstile's Ballet, Come Up to My Place, and the A Day in New York Ballet. And then the other songs on the soundtrack for the movie, including the titular on the town were actually by Roger Edens, but the same people did the lyrics for both. So that's interesting though, to me to find out that on the town was not in the original musical, given that it's like the title song sort of Mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, I want to now watch the stage production because it sounds so much better. Yeah. I have to say, I feel like I'm not out of bed yet is the most like, Broadway musical sounding to me Hmm. with like, you know, that voice and I don't know, it's just, it's actually beautiful to me and kind of my favorite like song and part compared to a couple others that I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. So true. And I'm not out of bed yet. Like also like, because you, it starts and ends it. Right. So it's a, it's a, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, bookend pieces. Um, And also his voice in the film is just so incredible. Yeah. Right. Very Broadway, very Broadway. Yeah. So Leonard Bernstein was not super happy about the changes then made to the show. Um, In the book, Gene Kelly, A Life of Dance and Dreams, uh, Bernstein is quoted as saying, there are six songs in that picture, which are not good and are not by me. Yet people assume I wrote them. I resent that. End quote. (laughs) He's like, my shit is so sophisticated and I got left with this garbage. And I don't, I actually don't think the other songs are garbage. Like, I mean, maybe it's because it's of nostalgia. We'll get to that in general opinion. But like, I can understand why he would be upset, though, you know? 100%. So in terms of the cast for On the Town, the movie version, Kelly had already made another Sailors on Leave film, Anchors Away, with Frank Sinatra. And he also worked with Sinatra, Betty Garrett, and Jules Munchen on the movie Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And in that movie, their characters played very similar types. It's interesting. (laughs) And then um, Kelly had also previously danced with Vera Ellen in the Slaughter on 10th Avenue scene of the musical Words and Music. And that is quite a sexy dance scene. It's a very different than Vera Ellen's image 
in this movie. So that's worth checking out if you want to go over on YouTube and see that. And I might put a link to it in the show notes, actually. This movie marked the directorial debut of Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan, Um, Though according to one of Kelly's biographies, they had also basically taken over directing on Take Me Out to the Ball Game because Busby Berkeley could not deal with directing them. They were being too difficult and kind of disagreeing with him on too much. Okay, and the movie on the town had one month of rehearsals. And once it was shooting, Donnan and Kelly worked 18 hour days. But it Mm. was said they did not make the rest of the cast work those days, but they were just on it all the time. It ended up being a very successful movie, both critically and financially. It grossed over $4 million, and it won a 1950 Oscar for Best Music. And the film is considered innovative in a couple ways. So to us, like the modern audience, I'm sure this movie seems pretty, you know, kind of standard, if not maybe even a little hokey, right? Mm -hmm. But there were a few things they did that were kind of innovative. Like, first of all, the time scroll at the bottom of the screen was like a new thing they were trying, and it was supposed to represent the Times Square ticker. There was also quick cutting in the montage of the New York scenery. And apparently the quick cutting was kind of a newer thing. And then most importantly, this was the first movie musical to shoot on location with its location scenes in New York. So this was actually new stuff at the time. Yeah, when I remember when I saw the ticker, I was like, oh, like I was surprised because I was like, oh, I didn't even know they had the technology to kind of do that yet. Uh, to put so the timestamp on the by movie. That. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Like, I guess, like, I didn't think much of it when I first saw it, but like, yeah, when I'm looking at it is more of like a moviegoer has put things into historical context. I'm like, yeah, I can see that being new. And the the quick cuts too. Like we take those for granted, but like there weren't a lot of movies using cuts like that. Interesting. You might talk about this later, but wasn't it Gene Kelly who was like, we need to do on, like we have to do on location stuff. Like he was going to force that. Right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it adds such a dynamism, I think to the movie to have that. It yeah, it looks great. It definitely like made you like more in in the city. Like you felt mm-hmm. like you were a part of the city instead of just like a. I also you could really tell when you were a part of a stage and maybe part of the city. So it was, I was a little weirded by that sometimes. <laughs> but I think okay. it's also because we watch with you know our twentieth century, you know, movie knowledge. Yeah, and twenty first century now. Twenty first century, true. Yeah. So Gene Kelly is quoted in the book "He's Got Rhythm: The Life and Career of Gene Kelly" as saying. We made better pictures than that, but that was the apex of our talent. Maybe my biggest contribution to the film musical. So yeah, he had quite a high regard for it, um, even years later. And I'm going to be relying on a few books um, during this podcast. I'll put them in the show notes. But by far, the information I got, the book I got the most from was He's Got Rhythm, The Life and Career of Gene Kelly by Cynthia Brideson and Sarah Brideson. If you're like even slightly interested in Gene Kelly, I really recommend it. Okay, so let's talk about our opinion of the film, when you first saw it, what you thought of it then, what you think of it now. And I, I'd usually let you guys go first, but I think I need to go first this time, just because okay, I feel, I suspect I was the first person who saw this out of the three of us. I don't know. Like, I grew up yes. on this movie. Like, oh, I, did you? I, yeah, I absolutely grew up on On the Town. I don't know why, but it was one of the tapes we had, right? And I must have seen this movie like a hundred times when I was a kid. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a hundred. Like, I knew all the numbers. I knew all the songs. I shipped um, Hildy, the cab driver, and Chip. That was my ship, I guess you could say, when I was a little kid. Like, that's who I identified with. And I guess I really took for granted a lot of the dancing and stuff like that. It's only, like, now that I can see it. I just really like the story. It really appealed to a kid to see these, like, sailors, and there's three couples, and they're in New York City. And it seemed really fun to me. So it was very nostalgic for me. Like, when I watch it now, I still really like it. I, I think there's 
musicals I like better now and stories I respond to more now, but also now learning about the artistry and the innovation involved in it, I can also appreciate that on a different level. So I like it, but I like it in a different way now. I don't like it in my child's view kind of way anymore. I really like, so I had never seen it before. I literally watched it just for this podcast. And I, one of the things I really loved about it was that it seemed very progressive. And we've talked about this before, that this this era had a lot of like very progressive, for women especially, ideas, but also progressive in the idea that they all can just be friends. You know, when, when they're they're doing their dances and they're meeting each other, they are they're very friendly to each other. And when they end mm. their relationships, they're friends. You know, it's not about like a big passionate thing for everyone. It's just about like people meeting and finding friendship. Uh, This is the first time I saw it and um, it was okay. Like I said, I was, I had high expectations with that opening number and then it kept going. I'm like, oh, I, of course, having lived in Brooklyn for 13 years, I loved the actual footage of the city that was super great and i wanted my husband to watch this with me i'm like come on watch it with me watch it with me he's like i'm not gonna watch the musical but then i saw this opening number i'm like wait you have to see it you'll flip (laughs) out for the you know old new york so he he liked that too that was cool i love vera ellen from white christmas yeah like absolutely my favorite and gene kelly is super cute i've always been a fan so it was cute I think I liked it even on like the second viewing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm over here on a hundred and something. I don't know. (laughs) I definitely would not watch it again on purpose. Okay. Okay. I watched it once and I was like, and I fast forwarded through a lot of the dance numbers and I was like, that's, that's. No, I'm sorry. Gene Kelly. That's hilarious. Gene Kelly just rolled over in his grave. Just whatever. He was super boring. (gasps) Oh my God. You're talking about my new boyfriend last week. I know it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. It's Gene Kelly. Actually, I think, and I think Gene Kelly is going to last a little longer. Do you guys have any more to talk about your general opinion uh, right now? Or should I start talking about my new musical boyfriend? You should definitely talk about your Yeah, I want to hear about your boyfriend. Oh my God. So when I was a kid, Gene Kelly was not the person that stuck out to me in this movie. Like it was definitely like, you know, Frank Sinatra's character because I liked his relationship with Hildy. I thought they had the more interesting like kind of songs. Now that I know that one of those was the Leonard Bernstein song, that totally makes sense. But Man, when I started watching other Gene Kelly movies preparing for this podcast, I kind of fell in love with him. Like I'm, I'm, I'm crushing on him like a little teenager right now. Like, and I, I'll talk about some of those movies more in the double feature recommendations. But then I read a biography of him, and I was like, dude, this guy is so cool. He's so intense. Like, so I'm going to tell you about Gene Kelly. And I'm going to try not to talk for too long, and feel free to interject things. But I'm just going to say, like, I completely understand what the fuss is about now. Right. Like I always knew he was important. I always knew Singing in the Rain was a great movie, like that he was very influential. But like he's such an amazing, talented person and he had such an interesting life story. So without further ado. So he was born in 1912 in Pittsburgh. Um, He was in a Catholic family. He has a like I never noticed this before. Did you guys notice his scar? Yeah. Yeah. He has a scar on his face, which for some reason I watched this movie a million times, never noticed it before. He has a scar on his left cheek, which he got from like a tricycle accident when he was a kid. Wow, that's some gash. (laughs) Nothing manly or anything like that. Just like a little trike accident. Kelly and all his brothers and sisters were all given dance lessons because his mother had wanted to be a performer and had some experience on the stage when she was younger. So she was kind of, I think, trying to live vicariously through them. And he and his siblings also began performing in shows And Gene was also like choreographing and directing shows for like other kids, like at quite a young age. 
So this was like another story like Fred Astaire of people becoming involved in like shows and performing quite early in their life. So initially Gene Kelly wanted to do sports and he was doing like baseball, gymnastics, football, like all kinds of things. But he told like interviewers, he might have been being a little cheeky here that he started up with dancing again because it allowed him to meet girls. And then during the depression, performing also like brought in money. So he often performed with his brother, Fred Kelly. He did go to college and he was about to go into law school, but he ended up realizing he really wanted to dance. And so he came home to Pittsburgh and his family uh, started a dance school. And Gene and some of his siblings were the teachers there. And like this part of the biography was super interesting because this dance school became like a huge deal. Like it became a chain and like people from all over wanted to, to like take classes with them. And like he was also at the same time choreographing shows for people. He was like being a dance doctor for like vaudeville acts and telling them what was wrong with their performances. It sounded like he was just like one of those people that's working all the time. It became like literally he became such a big deal like in Pittsburgh that like people from New York actually found him and tried to recruit him for Broadway. Finally, he ended up moving to New York in 1938. And he was also at one point offered an opportunity to be in a ballet troupe, but he said, quote, I knew I couldn't stay with straight classical ballet. I had to create something of my own. I had to express manliness and strength and Cokes and hot dogs and football and basketball and jazz. And he said he wanted to find what he called the American dance. So he wanted to combine aspects of ballet, tap and modern dance And he eventually then decided to, instead of going to into a ballet troupe or continuing to run the schools, he went to New York in 1938. Once he went to New York, he found success relatively quickly. Um, He got cast as Harry the Hoofer in The Time of Your Life, and he met future collaborator Stanley Donnan while they were doing choreography on the show Best Foot Forward, like Donnan was assisting him at that time. And then he started starring in Pal Joey in 1940 on Broadway and attracted Hollywood attention. He also met his first wife, Betsy Blair, on that show. They got married and moved to Hollywood together after the run of the show. Okay, so now we get into the movies. And so the first movie I watched when I like just randomly when I was trying to watch other Gene Kelly films was his first movie, 1942's For Me and My Gal. And he was in that with Judy Garland. And Garland was like one of the people who told MGM that they should get him for the picture. And then she ended up helping him translate his acting from the stage to the screen. And he ended up being like really grateful to Judy Garland for like the rest of his career. He was like one of her big supporters over time. Cool. His next significant film was Cover Girl in 1944. And that's when Kelly and Donnan began collaborating on choreography for films. And in that movie, Kelly did another innovation. He did this challenge dance where there was like two images of himself dancing with each other like on the screen, which was like new at the time also. Then before joining the actual Navy, Kelly worked with Frank Sinatra and Anchors Away. And in that movie, there was the first ever musical scene to combine live action with a cartoon. Like Disney had been working on this, but they actually did it first using Jerry Mouse from Tom and Jerry. Oh, mm. that's so cute. I like that dance number. I've seen clips yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. And um, so Kelly was really anxious to serve in World War II, and he wanted to leave earlier. But MGM wouldn't release him until November 1944. And then he was disappointed because he got put into the Navy's photographic unit, and he was making training films. But he ended up making kind of a really interesting one called Combat Fatigue Irritability, which is like basically about what we call PTSD today. So he directed it and starred in that. So 
he made some contributions that way. And he was also learning directing while he was there. And then back from the war, and I'm only including this film because I think it's really fun, okay? I'm going to talk about it later. He made his second film with Garland, uh, The Pirate. And it's a really over-the-top movie. And there was another first in this film, though. Uh, Kelly performs a dance with Black performers, the Nicholas Brothers. And it was the first time Black and white dancers had danced together in a film, according to the sources I've read, which hmm. seems insane that it took until 1948. I'm wondering if there's like some other instance where they were almost performing together. I don't know. Well, I'm wondering when were the Shirley Temple films made earlier, right? And she know. was dancing with like the butler, the black butler and stuff okay. like that. And they do that dance on the stairs. I mean, did they yeah, not maybe, count that? Cause she's I a don't know. child. Maybe, maybe they didn't count it. Did they make physical contact with each other? Oh, that, I don't even know if they're holding it. hands or not. Because he was like, because they were like in the in the pirate, they were like kind of doing these dance maneuvers that were very acrobatic and all holding on to each other. So maybe that's what it is. Okay, yeah, I don't know. Well, anyway, um, Kelly made a few more films before On the Town, including Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which Kelly and Donna wrote for the the story for together. Then after making On the Town together as their di directorial debut, Kelly performed in his third and final movie with Judy Garland in 1950 called Summer Stock. Then in 1951, Kelly appeared in one of his most famous roles, An American in Paris, which won six Oscars, including Best Picture. At the time, An American in Paris was kind of considered the more important film. But like over time, I would say 1952's Singing in the Rain is like taken over. Singing in the Rain was also co-directed by Kelly and Donnan, and it was written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green from On the Town. So it has a lot of similar creators. Um, other significant 1950s films for Kelly were Brigadoon, It's Always Fair Weather, Kelly's experimental all-dance movie, Invitation to the Dance, which he directed, and the movie Marjorie Morningstar. Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly ended their directorial collaboration and their friendship with the movie It's Always Fair Weather. Apparently, they had too many creative differences on that movie. Donnan has a lot of, unfortunately, Donnan does not have much good to say about Kelly um, in his interviews later in life. He was quoted as saying, if you substitute the word fight for co-direct, then you have it. It wasn't always like that with Gene, but it gradually came to be that. So by the late 1950s, Kelly's movie work was slowing down, but he returned to Broadway and directed Flower Drum Song. He was also asked to direct and choreograph a jazz ballet for the Paris Opera Ballet, which was super well regarded at the time. And with the increasing importance of television, he began directing and choreographing and performing in TV specials. He also appeared in the TV version of Going My Way from 1962 to 1963. In the 60s, he also made movies including Inherit the Wind, What a Way to Go, and The Young Girls of Rochefort. He directed Hello, Dolly! in 1969. And in the 70s, he directed The Cheyenne Social Club, and he appeared as himself and directed segments in the That's Entertainment documentary films. And his last film, as many people know, was Xanadu in 1980, <laughs> which we are also going to cover in our musical series. And he continued also to work in television, including on the show North and South. So this is really surprising. So I found out this. In addition to the work that Gene Kelly did do, he also missed out on some other really famous work. So he was injured, so he wasn't able to do Easter Parade, for which he was the first pick. Okay. He, all, he was not allowed to do Pal Joey the Movie or Guys and Dolls because MGM wouldn't let him. And he was really mm. pissed about that. 
And he was also asked to direct The Sound of Music, which he turned down because he thought the stage show was kind of dull, I guess, at the time. And he was asked to direct Cabaret. And I think the reason he didn't do Cabaret was because his second wife was having ill health at the time. So, um, which she eventually died. So he, but he was asked to do a lot of prominent things too. He never won an Oscar for a specific performance, but he did win an honorary Oscar in 1952. And then here's where we come to the, the difficult things like with Stanley Donnan. So he was known to be a perfectionist. Like he was really hard on himself as well, but he could be hard on others. So particularly like Esther Williams had nothing good to say about him, really, except that he could dance. And Debbie Reynolds had like mixed things to say about him. She said it was pretty hellish working on it, but she did have nice things to say about him later and said that the work had been worth it. But he was also really helpful to other act- a lot of actors. So he helped up their dancing skills, including Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland and Debbie Reynolds. And he was really loyal to Judy Garland. So he was like a very complicated dude, it seems mm-hmm. like. He was married three times. He married actress Betsy Blair when she was only 17. What they were the together. F? Well, okay. Oh. Number one, she was working as a chorus girl in New York City from the time she was 15, like living on her own. So like this was like a completely different time. Okay. All the oh, chorus okay. girls were like 16, 17 years old. Wow. He didn't they apparently like from what I can find out, they didn't sleep together before they were married. And he asked her parents for permission. It was all very properly done. And he never cheated on her. Like she actually ended up cheating on him and he wanted to stay together with her. And he said he'd been ignoring the cheating because he knew that she didn't really have like a normal adolescence. Right. But like she, she was ready to go off on her own, but she had like nothing but good things to say about him. Like after like years after they divorced, they like became friends pretty much immediately. So on the one hand, you can say what the F on the other hand, it was a totally different time. And they were it together a different from, time, but you look at that now and you're like, oh my God, 17, that's crazy. But um, I, I don't know. Like how old was he? I want to, how old was he? He was like 29, I want to say. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I don't yeah. say it's crazy just because I'm like, it was a totally different time. People it had a completely a different, different idea of what adolescence meant, what being an adult meant. Like, yeah. dudes were going off to die in trenches. Like, well, not trenches, not World War One, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, they were together for like 16 years. They had one child who like had nothing but good to say about Gene Kelly as a dad. So it seems like they were a pretty, you know, happy family unit. His second wife, then Jeannie Coyne, had been in love with him since she was 12 years old and he was her dance teacher. And she had worked with her him over the years as an assistant choreographer and briefly been married to Stanley Donnan from 1948 to 1951. Uh, Kelly and Coyne ended up getting married, like, I think it was a couple years after his divorce from Betsy Blair. And apparently we're very happy together. They had two kids, but then Coyne died of leukemia in 1973, which was Mm. like super heartbreaking. And then finally, Kelly married Patricia Ward in 1990. Now, this is a really strange situation. They met when she was 26 and he was 73 and they married five years later. Like this is Freddie Steer married like a super younger woman, too, when he was older. And like there's various people like some people think Patricia Ward is just like a fine person but Betsy Blair his first wife did not have good things to say about her oh really so so Gene Kelly then died at 83 years old of complications from a stroke Mm. Um, but he had a huge he had a huge influence on the American musical and, and American movies there's a quote from the book he's got rhythm Gene's creations revolutionized dance and helped make America the leader in contemporary movement As one journalist expressed it, he drew upon the whimsy of tap, the showmanship of the eccentric dancer, 
the free form of Martha Graham, his own skills as a gymnast, and organized all of it with legitimate classical disciplines. The bristling package of rhythm and style hit the dance world with a fallout that is still being felt. And like the more I see of his work, the more like I feel this and can agree with it and can appreciate it really. Like I just got handed this on a VHS tape when I was a kid and like after decades had gone by and had no real framework for it. Now having more of a framework for it and seeing it like after the Stair Rogers movies, like which were much more aimed at high class, like where the characters were much more high class. Like he also like sort of democratized dance and brought it down to like regular people in the streets dancing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't anymore for like the top hat and white tail people. It was for just a guy. All right. So we're going to talk about Vera Ellen, who played Ivy Smith, a- a.k.a. Miss Turnstiles. She was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, in either 1921 or 1926. Let's be honest. She's one of those gals who's like, you'll never know my age. (laughs) (laughs) And she successfully did it because before the internet. So (laughs) credible sources give one of those two years. Her full name was Vera Ellen Westmeyer Rowe. Several days before she was born, her mother had dreamed that her name Vera-Ellen, including that hyphen, and believed that it would be in lights. I mean, that's pretty hardcore for her mom. She began taking dance lessons at 10 years old as a way to strengthen her health. She also traveled to New York and began to get stage work, so her mother moved to the city with her. She appeared in her first musical, which was Very Warm for May in 1939. So at 18, she began performing at Radio City, because gosh, those legs, uh, Music Hall as one of the youngest Rockettes. For as talented a dancer she was, she surprisingly only had 16 IMDb credits. That's really sad. She's amazing. She made her movie debut in The Wonder Man with Danny Kaye in 1945 and followed that up with another Danny Kaye movie, The Kid from Brooklyn, in 1946. Before doing On the Town, she also appeared in several other films, including the Marx Brothers movie Love Happy and in Words and Music. Vera Ellen Ellen continued to make movies after On the Town, including two films with Fred Astaire, Three Little Words, and The Bell of New York. Perhaps her most famous film appearance, even bigger than On the Town, was in the 1954 classic White Christmas. For more about White Christmas, make sure you check out every rom-com episode 52. Her last movie was Let's Be Happy in 1957. During the 1950s, Vera Ellen also made television appearances. Vera Ellen's singing voice was often dubbed in her movies, but there is no dubbing mention for On the Town. Vera Ellen was married and divorced twice, During her second marriage, which lasted from 1954 to 1966, she had a child who died from SIDS in 1963. After this tragic event, Vera Ellen retreated from public life. During her life and afterwards, there were rumors that Vera Ellen had an eating disorder, but a close friend and niece both denied this. She died of ovarian cancer in 1981 at the age of 60. Tragic. So young. So sad. Yeah. Well, uh... On the Town also stars Betty Garrett. Betty was born in 1919 in Missouri, but her family quickly moved to Seattle, Washington. Her mother ended up divorcing two husbands during Garrett's childhood, so Garrett often lived with a single mother. Garrett attended school in Tacoma, and though her school didn't have any official theater, she would organize performances. In high school, she was able to meet Martha Graham, who recommended her for a scholarship at the Neighborhood Playhouse in New York City. Wow. To meet Martha. (laughs) 
Um, Garrett and her mother moved to the city in 1936, and Garrett began studying and also performing in the Borscht Belt during the summers. She then began performing with other theater groups and in Martha Graham's dance company. In 1942, she made her Broadway debut in Of V We Sing and continued to work on Broadway until 1947, when she was signed to a contract with MGM. Her first movie was Big City in 1948. Before On the Town, she also appeared in Words and Music, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, and Neptune's Daughter. In the early 50s, Garrett toured the UK with her actor husband, Larry Parks. His career and hers to some extent, had been affected by the Hollywood blacklist. Mm. Mm. In 1955, Garrett appeared in the musical My Sister Eileen, and her last film for decades was the noir drama The Shadow on the Window in 1957. After that, Garrett returned to performing in theater, including a few Broadway shows and did some guest spots on TV. Garrett and her husband, Larry Parks, were owners-landlords of apartment buildings for their income, and Garrett also kept busy raising their two sons. Garrett had a career revival in 1973 to 1975 when she began playing Irene on the TV show All in the Family. She won a Golden Globe for that role in 1974. Then, in 1976 to 1981, Garrett played the role of Edna in Laverne and Shirley. Garrett continued to appear on television through 2006 on shows including Murder, She Wrote, The Golden Girls, Boston Public, and Grey's Anatomy. She also continued to appear in theater and directed an Arthur Miller play, The Price, at Theater West, which she co-founded. Garrett has two final films listed in IMDb, both of which appear to be low-budget B-films, Trail of the Screaming Forehead and Dark and Stormy Night. Uh, Betty died in 2011 of an aortic aneurysm. Yeah, so we have some really talented people, and I'm sorry we aren't able to get to the other talented people in the cast and crew. Um, like, obviously, we talked about other cast and crew include Frank Sinatra, Ann Miller, Jules Munchen, not to mention the uh, crew and, and also the music of Leonard Bernstein, but we just don't have time to cover everybody, partly because I had to do an epic poem to Gene Kelly. But hopefully we'll get around to covering at least some of them on future episodes of the podcast. So now let's get into the movie. So we open the movie. We see again, like we mentioned, this 5.57 a.m. digital time scroll across the bottom of the movie screen. And we see this fabulous dock worker show up on the, the dock. Actually, not really fabulous. He's just this like big guy and he's got this really great big deep voice and he mm -hmm. sings his little song. I feel like I'm not out of bed yet. Okay, never mind. I can't sing that deep, but we'll try. <laughs> oh, well, the sun is warm. But my blanket's warmer. Sleep, sleep in your lady's arms. Sleep in your lady's arms. Anyway, that guy rules. Very good. So like when I was like a kid, like when I was like an adolescent, like trying to get up for school, I literally would sing this song sometimes. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Oh, sun is warm. Yeah, I would sing yeah. that too. Like Shoot. I was some kind of dock worker or something going into like my first period class, like whatever. Anyway, we now come to 6 a.m. on the bottom of the screen. A horn blasts 
and there's like all this energy as sailors disembark from a Navy ship. And they were ab and they were actually able to use a real Navy ship for this scene. And it was filmed in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, Kelly had some pull with the Navy since he'd served oh, in it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And these three sailors like immediately emerge next to the dock worker, Kelly Sinatra and Munchen, and they begin singing New York, New York. And yeah, the only comment I have about that initial song is that the original Broadway music called New York a hell of a town. But Louis B. Mayer was like, it's got to be wonderful. Or the censors. I don't know. One or the other. What do you guys think of make of this whole first scene here? New this York, first New York. scene reminds me of the Sex and City episode about all the sailors who come into town for one day. <laughs> every time. Every time. I'm just like, oh, look at all the boys. All the Navy men are out. It's all it's it's sailor week. Sure, yeah. All of a sudden the city's just, you know, everybody in their white uniforms. It's fun. You're like, oh, Fleet Week. It just feels like you know, nostalgic for things like this, you know. For this were you film. ever in a position to flirt with a sailor or were you already no. like taken? Okay. All right. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, I've been singing this song though. The Bronx is up and the battery's down. New York, New York. Yeah. It's a it's wonderful town. You couldn't leave me hanging like that, Sophia. <laughs> well, I'm not going to try that. They, they travel around in a hole in the ground. I'm like, that's true. <laughs> And that is one of the original Bernstein songs, too. So preserved from the original musical. Yeah. Lovely. So, yeah. And like this, before we get going into the rest of the movie here, this is one of the many movies of this time period, because it's the World War II time period, that focused on romance with sailors or members of the military. There were a lot of films, of course, that were sort of doubling as propaganda as well. Right. And it was also relevant to people's lives. And then like the idea of military men being like somehow romantic, you know, or attractive, I would say it goes as far back as at least Jane Austen, because you've got pride and prejudice, oh, sure. you've got persuasion. Huh. So I don't think it's as much of a genre anymore, although I could be wrong, Sybil and Sophia, maybe you know more, maybe there are more military romance novels that I'm unaware of. But what do you think of this genre of romance with Navy or military men? Like, is it something you get the appeal of or does it not do much for you? It doesn't do much for me. No, I don't care. Though I will say that there are there are surprisingly a lot of still military romance stuff that comes out. I think it's just like more like Hallmark movies and stuff. Like I just saw one called Purple Heart Hearts on uh, Netflix, oh. which is very very good, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Excellent rom com. Excellent. So nothing, nothing for either of you at all. Like, no, no, okay. not what for about, no. Men in I uniform mean, won't do it for me though, and I think it's, this is like a man in uniform protection, white knight scenario. Yeah, hmm. I think okay. I mean, I think that firefighters are cool. They're not military, but in uniform, right? I have a friend who's obsessed with firefighters. So it became like more fun for me every time I spot one. I'm like oh, a firefighter. <laughs> um. So if I, if I were to like go goofy for anybody in uniform, it would be firefighters. Yeah, I've never really gotten the appeal of the military men thing. And I think it's because like post maybe 1960s, post Vietnam War, I oh. think it just like took on such a different tinge, right? Like sure. in the World War II and in, in previous wars, I think a lot of times like you thought of like men serving in the military is like doing their duty, very patriotic, like very laudable, right? Or at least I think a lot of people felt that way. And then it just became a different thing in our society. Like, and the wars that we fought became less, you know, mm. clear cut in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And sometimes even perhaps wrong at times. So it's like, 
it really does put a different tenor onto the whole situation. Like, and, and uniforms have never done much for me, but I will say that these actors look mighty fine in their uniforms, especially Gene Kelly. Yes. Interesting note. Interesting note. Apparently Frank Sinatra had to yes. have his uniform padded. Yes. You, I read you knew that this? too. I okay. read this as well as I was, you know, searching around and stuff because he was so scrawny and he was self-conscious about it. And when they patted his butt, he was self-conscious about that. Poor, poor Frank. I had no idea. Yeah. So that's not Frank's butt? Guess no. not. Oh, poor Frank. He was like, I just needed a Brazilian butt lift. I'm so, so, so sad. Uh, but Jean's, Jean's buns. <laughs> Dude, if you go to Letterboxd, like, and go to any review of any Gene Kelly film, almost any Gene Kelly film, it's all people who are co- third of the commenters are talking about his butt. I'm not even kidding. So that's just well, point of interest. Dancers asses, they move you. That's that's how <laughs> that's how they get around that butt. You know that ass. It does it does work. <laughs> all right, so we're well, moving on, moving on. So we get into now this um, montage that we've talked about. So they had uh, five days to shoot on. They were only given five days to shoot on location. And two of those days were rainy. But they managed to get this amazing New York montage like that begins the film oh, with the song New York, New York. And they got shots of the Brooklyn Bridge, Chinatown, the Statue of Liberty, Central Park, Rockefeller Center, and more during this montage. And... Um, yeah, like we said, it was an innovation to shoot on location, and it was an innovation to use the quick cuts that they made. And location shooting was kind of made more difficult for them because Frank Sinatra was so freaking popular at the time. He would just get mobbed by young girls, especially. Um, Kelly told American Film Magazine in 1979 that Sinatra was, quote, as hard to hide as the Statue of Liberty. He was always being mobbed. And they couldn't take limos to location shots as a result. I guess that was the practice at the time. Instead, huh. they crouched on the floor of taxis so people wouldn't see them. So we've we've talked a little bit about this, but um, like I think Sophia, you told us you really liked the montage. Your husband appreciated it. Um, Sybil, how did it strike you? You are a um, fellow montage lover. Yeah, I do. You know, I love a good montage. I think this is a really good montage. I do think that I have no idea what space time continuum they live in. <laughs> to get to the places that they're getting and and the time in which they got so that that was like i was like wow back then it was so much faster to get places obviously they have like (laughs) portals and tunnels i literally think they were making a joke about it right because like the the next time we after the montage it says 9 30 a.m and like sinatra's like well where do we go next i feel like that was almost like a purposeful like joke don't you think yeah Yes, I have no idea, but I like. He also says at that point, he's like, "We have, we're going to go to the history museum or something." And he's like, "And then 15 minutes later, he's like, going to go somewhere else." And I'm like, "Yeah, Yeah. right on, (laughs) right on." Yeah, his whole tour is like 15 minute intervals of like like the cloisters, the Museum of Modern Art. Like everything is like 15 minutes, and somehow that includes the travel time. Yeah, so we know what he's going to be like in bed, and he's definitely a 15 minute man. Oh no. (laughs) <laughs> but I did really love I did really love this montage and I really like the use of the real New York City stuff. Mm-hmm. I wish that they were and now that I know that it rained, you know, it makes it a little more understanding sensible. I I really wish that they had had more scenes of New York because the places that were not real and were just like backgrounds mm-hmm. stills that they were standing in front of looked so much worse because of mm-hmm. the reality of the real mm-hmm. locations. Are you talking yeah. about partly the Empire State Building or like? There were a few of them that I was just like, okay. ooh. Okay. Okay. <sighs> Rockefeller yeah. Center, if you look in the background, you can see yes. hundreds of people, right? 
Yes, yes, yes. I totally noticed that too. They were totally there watching them. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I was like, but it's Rockefeller Center, so you can totally leave those people. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yep. It's cool though. You're like, I'm watching the fans of Frank Sinatra. Like, yeah. <laughs> there really, they I are. Mean, it really was. It was really cool. I mean, this was like doing these kind of like scenes for the first time when you're doing location stuff like that. I mean, that's that's so innovative and amazing. Okay, so now we're we've got the men. We we established their kind of personalities. As we mentioned, Frank Sinatra's character Chip is laser focused on sightseeing. He says, "I've never been any place but Peoria." But Gabe and Ozzy both want to meet women. Gabe is from Meadowville, Indiana, and Ozzy says he is from a place where all the women are covered in coal dust. So, <laughs> like, this gets into a little bit more of the film as it goes on. But as long as there's no spoilers. Um, is, do you have a favorite of these male characters? Is there one that you respond to more, or find more attractive or relatable in any way? I mean, I think it's clear that uh, Gabe slash Gene Kelly's the, the 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 hottie, the one that you're after, and things like that. I don't understand what the uh, Frank Sinatra character like. Is he supposed? They keep calling him kid. And yeah, this, yeah. Is he supposed to be like? 18 years old or something yeah yeah like the funny thing about this this character right is that frank sinatra's character in anchors away and in take me out to the ball game was also being portrayed as a young juvenile guy who doesn't know much about women and sex he's like 34 isn't he or something (laughs) during filming i'm not sure how old he was at the time but i'm just gonna say that that was a type he was playing apparently in this era so it's kind of interesting that way that is interesting and bonkers because he totally doesn't look 18 he looks like a grown man and like anyway so but who did you like like i, I, I thought they were all fun like yeah. like i said like i'd hang i'd hang out with all of them they, they're they're like a fun crew you know I'd, I'd party with a lot of them um so, would i date any of them no okay so when i was a kid i really was into chip and the funny thing is like i totally related to his desire to sightsee too like maybe not in 15 minute increments but like that's how i am on trips a lot of times i'm like i need to plan things out and i need to know where i'm gonna go and like yeah, I got to see some shit. So I understood, especially when I was a kid, you know, and I wasn't like as sex focused, right? Like now, if I were choosing someone to date, it would not be Chip. It would definitely be Gabe, but come on. <laughs> as a kid, I understood Chip deeply. I was like, yeah, we're on the same page here. So that we got our men established and now they're going to encounter kind of the mission of the movie. So they're on the subway and a man puts up a poster for Miss Turnstiles for June, Ivy Smith. Uh, the the text under her picture reads, she's a home loving girl, but she loves high society's whirl. She loves the army, but her heart belongs to the Navy. She's studying painting at the museums and dancing at symphonic hall. And then uh, Gene Kelly is reading this out, out loud and he says, gee, she's wonderful. I love this montage. Like I love oh. them. This is like a dancing montage essentially. Yeah. Like, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. It, it, makes the ridiculousness so obvious of like this person who shouldn't actually be real. And then as we meet her more, she actually is all these things. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So Sybil's bringing up like there's while he's reading this, um, there's a dancing montage and, and Gene Kelly is doing the narration over it, which is something we've seen him do in other films, like singing in the rain as well. Yeah. So we're just seeing Ivy is like this perfect woman, like, like in this narration, she has to have beauty and brains and talent and the home loving section. She's like ironing and like taking care of her husband. And it is like you said, it is like almost to an absurd degree a little bit. 
Because then she immediately goes to high society's whirl and she's like in this dramatic gown and a fur and she's got one of those like cigarettes, like with a cigarette holder on it and everything like that. So then she's like frail and flower-like, but also an athlete. And she's performing like every athletic feat that anyone could ever do. Mm -hmm. And the whole sequence ends where she's like sitting on top of a pile of men that she's like boxed against and beaten up or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yep. I wanted to say also, um, I think this is such a great showcase for Vera Ellen's dancing, because you'll notice she doesn't really sing in this movie. She may be singing in one of the group numbers near the end. But other than Mm -hmm. that, she does not sing. But this is kind of disguised well by the fact that she's given this um, dance highlight number like right away in the film. Yeah. She's still like quite a star in the movie. Oh, yeah. She's definitely a star in the movie. And this was this was one of my favorite sequences. I, yeah. I really enjoyed this one. I just thought it was the ridiculousness was awesome. And it's also the Leonard Bernstein music too. So that's why it's so much better. <laughs> so the apparently, so the idea of Miss Turnstiles was actually based in reality, which I found out while doing research. So there was a program that ran from 1941 to 1976, where the New York Transit Authority selected women to serve as Miss Subways, which I got to say, Miss Turnstiles is a much better name, especially now that Subway's like a a fucking like Subway sandwich chain. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, there, there were women that they chose for this role of Miss Subways, and they put their posters with descriptions up throughout the subway system. And like, they weren't quite like this description, like sometimes they were, but they would often include the women's career ambitions. Some of the ones I saw had their like measurements, like, you know, super fun. But like sometimes they would be like during the during World War II, apparently some of the women's ambitions were quite like feminist and progressive, like they would want to be a doctor or something like so it was kind of a cool thing for women to see other women who had these ambitions for themselves. And the Miss Turns or the Miss Subways was one of the first integrated beauty pageants. There was a black Miss Subways in 1948 and an Asian American winner in 1949. So. I thought that was super interesting. And in 1998, ahead of the revival of On the Town, they had a Miss uh, Subway's reunion, which was attended by many of the Miss Subways, as well as On the Town writers Comden and Green and Sono Osato, who originally played Miss Turnstiles on Broadway, who then gave a sash to Ty Jimenez, who played her in the 1998 revival. So that's kind of cool, I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did they win anything? Did you find it like they were like free subwaying for a month or something? You know, I did not, I did not like read anything about that. So it might've just been the prestige or maybe the modeling agency would take them on. I'm not sure. Cause the guy who started it was running a modeling agency. So maybe some of them had ambitions in that, you know, area. They would show up sometimes to do like, um, to at the openings of new subway lines and things or subway stops. So maybe they got paid for appearances, but I didn't really read much about that said much about that. So. All right. That's okay. Yeah. There's some good, good articles I'll link to in the show notes. So if you want to see pictures of some of the real Miss Subways that existed. All right. So let's see. So after the montage of Miss Turnstiles, um, Gabe takes the poster down and getting off the subway, he said he announces that he wants to meet her. Frank Sinatra tells him the odds are basically impossible. When, of course, they like look right up and there she is, like being photographed for a publicity photo. And Gabe is actually brought into that publicity photo by the photographer. But he's just like sitting there and he just like can't really say much to her. And then she runs off and gets onto the subway. Once again, in a city of millions of people, she's lost to him. But he makes it her mission, his mission that he's going to find her today. And no matter what it takes, and he's going to go on a date with her. 
like when I watched him in this scene, I was like, I literally like got like the heart palpitations. He did such a good job acting this mm-hmm. that I was like, I know exactly how you feel because I've been there. <gasps> His like st- like awestruckness, I'm like totally. And you don't think it's going to be you until it is that moment, and you're like, oh god, yep. yeah. I, I I hate this means nothing, but we're we're talking about the subway a little bit. And the scene where they first get down into the subway and they ask somebody for directions, um, <laughs> is my favorite part of the whole film. Oh, so New York. So New York, and it's so funny. They're like, hey, how do we get uptown? And the guy's like, Well, and then the train goes by and they can't hear a damn thing, and he's like that's how you do it and they're like okay and then they ask somebody else and he's like well you could and then the train goes by and they can't hear it but the fact that everyone will give you different directions to get to the mm-hmm. same place is 100 true and that you can't hear anything oh man it was like it's like it's, oh oh wow that's that's it that's awesome perfectly that's awesome. captured the city right I'm in glad. that little moment i'm really glad that worked for you i'm really happy it totally worked yeah. for me so they get out of the subway now and they're going to go in pursuit of Ivy. They're going to try to get a cab and meet her at the next stop. They they end up in the cab of Brunhilde Esterhazy, Hildy for short. And she immediately takes a fancy to Chip. She doesn't even look at Gene Kelly. She's just like, nope, I want this guy. Oh, like blue eyes, you know, how could you? And they sort of deal with the fact that she's driving the cab because during the war, this was pretty common. He says, what are you doing driving a cab? The war's over. And then she says, I never give up anything I like. So and then Hildy, like further making making sure that we know that Chip is special to her. She says, I've been waiting for you all my life. I knew you the minute I saw you. You're for me. I like your face. It's open. Nothing in it. The kind of face I could fall into. Kiss me. Like this war, this woman operates fast. Like she wants Chip. Yeah, yeah she's, she does. She yeah. operates real fast. She's like, I fell in love in a second. Yep. And I don't even know why. I just feel you in my soul. And Chip is like not like so into this. He's uh he's basically doing it for Gabe's sake at this point. So she lets the guys off at Columbus Circle where they run right past Ivy into the subway. But then they come back up and Hildy like is like pursuing them with her cab, like reversing and going forward and trying to get them into her taxi. And they do get into the taxi. And their new idea is that they are going to find museums because it's said that Ivy is studying painting at the museums. This is basically an excuse to get them to this um, anthropology museum where we have the modern man song number. And this character, the character of um, Claire and Ozzy were similar in Broadway. She was an anthropology student. He did resemble some kind of caveman, but they did not have this song. This was not a Leonard Bernstein song. But, this um, song is when I wanted to die. Okay, like in a bad way or a good way. I know in a bad way. Like I, I, like I fast forwarded it as much as I could while still mm-hmm. watching, mm-hmm. and it was still too long. Even okay. in fast forward. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna play a clip of the song first. Okay. Like then we'll discuss it. But I wanted to add one more comment before we get to the song too. So the reason we go into the song is that Ann Miller's character Claire notices that Ozzy looks like this like statue of Pithecanthropus erectus. She looks at him and she's so excited that she looks like this statue. And he then starts kind of going after her. She initially rebuffs him and says that she's only interested in him scientifically. And then she said she started studying anthropology to distract herself from chasing men. And he asked, did it work? And she said, almost completely. 
and she kisses him. So it's like the setup that like this character, Claire, was kind of like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, kind of a slut, kind of promiscuous. Mm-hmm. And she was studying anthropology and now she's irresistibly drawn to Ozzy. I thought that was kind of interesting as a setup for this female character. Yeah, I agree. We have like now two female characters in a row who are both very sexually assertive and like into mm-hmm. men and like that's not viewed as a bad thing. You don't often see this for chicks. They're like they're all more like Miss Turnstile, where she'd be like, I mean, I'm just like a dancer and a homemaker and da 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 and I I can't wait to just continue to be virginal. And these other chicks are like, dude. <laughs> yeah. Let's like let's some find some hotties and they're gonna leave again and that's great. <laughs> again yeah. i'm not sure i'm not sure if like we're meant to think it's totally unromantic but yeah yeah i think i think we'll, we'll talk okay. about that when we get to the end but like yeah. all right but okay i want to play now though a bit of the song modern man which sybil found terrible and which i mm-hmm. i really like the actual singing and the dancing like there's aspects of this that we'll talk about that are not great but like the actual song the actual dancing dug it so i'm gonna play it and then we'll talk about it Modern man is not for me, the movie star and dapper Dan. Give me the healthy Joe from ages ago, a prehistoric man. What has Gable got for me, or Mrs. Johnson's blonde boy van? I want a happy ape with no English drape, a prehistoric man. Top hats, bow ties, he simply wore no ties. Bare skin, bare skin. He just sat around in nothing but bare skin. I really love bare skin. Some guys care a lot for me, but my excitement they can't fan. Because I still await my primitive mate. We've had a date since the world began. My prehistoric All right. I'm not going to keep playing it, but there's a lot more like uh, sexual. There's a lot more like sexual innuendos in it. I really like Mm -hmm. Tom Toms and she's shaking her breasts. Um, Mm -hmm. I love self-expression when, you know, she kind of means some kind of sexual meaning behind that. Like, I love all the innuendos in this. I love when she's like, I really love bearskin. I have to admit it wasn't until this year that I realized it was a play on words and she was talking about B-A-R-E skin as well. She says it three times. That's how important this was. I know, but I watched it when I was a little kid so many times when I was innocent, right? And so I was like, oh, it's a bear. It's bear skin, right? And it was only this year that I'm like, oh yeah, fuck, she's saying bear skin. (laughs) I love those moments when you watch it with a different like perspective. You're like, oh, I missed that. Yeah. So okay, so Sybil, is it the song itself you object to? Is it the like today okay. very problematic like use of all? No, the no, e- I have I have nothing. Okay, so once again, knowing my rules about why you have music in musicals. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. to progress the plot in a place that needs to be sped up, the song ain't fast. It has no and has no importance, and mm-hmm. or two to sh- sh- like share something that's so emotional or has so much meaning that you cannot say it in regular words. I think I, I would argue the purpose of this scene is to show why she likes Ozzy. Cause otherwise I would have no idea. She's saying that he is like, just like very basic dude. He just wants sex. He's not analytical. That's the kind of guy she wants. And like the dance together is kind of the only way that we know that these two are hooking up. You know, they don't really get talk scenes later in the movie. This is their love scene. This is like what passes for their love scene. Also, I would say, I don't need a reason to see Ann Miller, the dance in that dress. She is Holy shit. fine as fuck. 
and her yep. costume is amazing and her legs yep. are amazing and she's a good dancer and good singer. Yeah. I okay. I think the song is totally stupid. Um, <laughs> they could have done a better song and a better job, like showing how she's into men and with you know wants to be with Ozzy. And yes, so many problematic playing with artifacts of the of the different societies. Oh yeah, and, all, uh, all all these societies are in the same room too. Which yeah, is all, all yeah. in the same yeah. room. This is the smallest giant museum yeah, in the world. Ancient and right? modern. Yeah, and then the war. And you're allowed to touch was- all of them, by the way. Nobody has a problem with that. Okay, yeah. as a as a kid, that was amazing though. As a kid, that's exactly what you want the museum to be. So I think that's part of why I responded to it as a young kid. Anyway, I don't mean to interrupt you, Sophia. Keep going. No, no, but definitely, definitely, Ann Miller in that dress, mm. which is so beautiful. It's a green dress with black and white check collar and lining. And so it's just a dress when she's, you know, talking about anthropology. But as she danced, the it's there's buttons all up and down you know, from the neckline to the hemline. And as she dances, those buttons come open and you see this green bodysuit under her skirt and her, you know, black stockings while she's dancing. That number, it's hard to get through because of the stupid lyrics and like it's problematic things. But if you can watch for her dancing, 100% worth it. That ending, she does this amazing turning footwork thing. I can't say enough about it. Ann Miller. And she, her voice is so rich. I didn't think the lyrics were stupid. I liked them. So I, I enjoyed <laughs> them. Corny. And I oh, think it's an, it's interesting because it's like this whole song is like kind of, um, it's a song kind of contemplating like, what is a man? Like what makes a man? Like she lists all these kind of icons of the time who are more like sophisticated, right? And like dre- dressing up and like analysis, like getting psychoanalyzed was like, becoming more of a thing and like being really cerebral. And it's kind of this tension about what do we want a man to be in society? So whatever you might think of the message she's portraying there, I think it's an interesting topic. It's an interesting way of looking at what like people were thinking about at that time. Thank so yeah, you. as we mentioned, there is, um, I don't even know if you would call it cultural appropriation because it's probably not, nothing's really super accurate, but it's, yeah, it's none like, of it's accurate. I mean, there's yeah. definitely like, you know, like at one point he pulls he pulls her by her hair, but that's just also just like, you know, a caveman kind of yeah, like they're making ideal, of it. yeah, right. Like I, th- I th- none of that really offended me. I was just like, I think wow. what could, I think what could potentially offend some people though is like they're conflating like sort of native artifacts from around the, the world with like prehistoric man, right? Like they're like mm-hmm. saying this is exactly the same thing, and they're kind of like you heard this probably in the trailer with like Ooh, oh, they're making like weird <laughs> tribal <laughs> noises or something like that, like. I don't know. So definitely it is a product of its time on that level. Yeah. Okay. So after this dance sequence, Ozzy uh, kind of gets clumsy and he knocks over this dinosaur skeleton that we heard earlier in the sequence had taken 20 years to build and they run away from the museum, but cops somehow know who they are and are alerted to the damage. And for some reason, the New York city cops have nothing better to do than chase after these people for destroying a dinosaur skeleton. Um, yeah. the, the actual prop skeleton was made of corrugated paper, um, 238 different pieces, and they were all connected by a wire so it could be collapsed and reassembled easily. But apparently it only took one take. So all that work oh. was not necessarily needed, but I guess better safe than sorry. True that. Okay. Cool. And now we have from 12 p.m. on the bottom of the screen to 1.30 p.m. a museum visit montage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I yeah. love a montage. I love a good use of a montage. Um, I felt that this was of my of montages a little weak. Yeah, but it got the job done. Yeah, this was more like just a this con- a montage that was there for convenience's sake. It wasn't really much to see in it. So yeah. Okay, and now like Hildy's kind of sick of all this like museum visiting, and she initiates a conversation about they will cover more ground if they split up. And Ozzy and Claire like this plan as well. Um, I think it's pretty much implied that they're going to go and have sex and Hildy's trying to get Chip to go have sex or maybe not have sex, maybe make out. They they want to get alone with their men is what's yeah, happening yeah, here. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. Chip is still really naive and thinks that he's going to go sightseeing with Hildy. <laughs> um, and this leads to, I know we have a lot of clips in a row right now, so I'm sorry about that, listeners, but this leads to my favorite song in the movie, which was also in the original musical, Come Up to My Place. So I'm going to play just a little clip of this. Well, which way do we go? The way of all flesh, Julia. The way of all flesh. Well, I guess we pulled that off. Yeah, I'm glad we're alone. I'm glad you're glad about time well where we go first huh well now that we're alone you can take me on that sightseeing tour of the city i was afraid you'd remember that okay quick tour of the city then up to my place oh no then we gotta go looking for gaby's girl no then up to my place where do you want to go first well my grandpa told me chip my boy there'll come a time when you leave home if you should ever hit new york be sure to see the hippodrome the hippodrome yeah the hippodrome I hear right. Did you say the hippodrome? Yes, you heard right. Yes, I said the hippodrome. Hey, what did you stop for? It ain't there anymore. They tore it down, you know, a dozen years ago. Oh, I wanted to see the hippodrome. What year is that guidebook anyway? Uh, 1905. 1905? No wonder. Don't you realize a big city like this changes all the time? There's one thing that doesn't change, kid. Come up to my place. No. My grandpa saw the girly shows and told me of one special pearl. He said the hottest show in town was called the Floradora Girl. Floradora Girl? Yeah, the Floradora Girl. Did I dig that one, that Floradora Girl? Yes, you dug that. That was Floradora. What stop for did you hate? No. I still love this song. I love this song Do so you? much. Oh the, God! Oh, you don't? Pe- no. Oh, I love it so much. The verbal—it's so dynamic. It's so fast. It's so quick. It's so clever. It's like, and their interplay with each other—the way they're reacting with each other and acting against each other. Like this song, we did these mu- musical reviews in Busan when I was living there. And I didn't direct them. I was just acting in some of them. And I was like begging them to use this as one of the songs in the musical review. I really (laughs) wanted to play Hildy. It's like, seriously, when I was more ambitious about this podcast, like series, I was thinking, oh, we'll do a bunch of karaoke versions of these and put them into the podcast. Right. But like, it just didn't come (laughs) together. But I would have totally loved to play Hildy. Like, I still want to play her someday, maybe if I can. So really, we just don't feel it. No. I couldn't take it. Why? I couldn't take the, did you say the hippodrome? Yes, I said the hippodrome. And then the, the on and on and on and on. I'm like, man, again, if we're talking about them, like having their scene together, I just feel like it could have been better. 
And oh. why do they make her sound like so um, shrill? Yeah, yeah, like what's up with that? I like the way she she totally carries herself against Sinatra, you know. But even then, like you're gonna have Sinatra saying why. <laughs> Well, he sings another song later, but this is the Leonard Bernstein song. This is from the original musical. <laughs> Sorry, Leonard. Yeah, I mean, they're not all feeling this one. Oh, my yeah. God. Okay, I don't even know what's wrong with you two. Okay, this is what, like, I, I rarely tell people their opinions are wrong because I believe mm. we all have. In this case, I think you're both wrong. I love this right. song so it's much. Cool, cool. It's, so, it's, it's clever. Fun. And I do feel it moves the plot forward. No, um, ready? It 100%. Um, this one it saw, serves all the things it's supposed to serve. It moves the plot along. You learn about character development. And she gets him up to her room, which is the point. Right up to her place, yeah. which is the point. So this actually, for a musical number, does the things that it's supposed to do. I'm just not saying it's a strong musical number. All right. All right. I, I loved yeah. singing this when I was a kid. Like, I would sing along to it, like, both parts. But mostly I liked Hildy. I loved Hildy. When I was a kid, I really responded to Hildy. And I really responded to, like, assertive females in general in movies and also music like this was like the madonna era right so like mm -hmm. i grew up with like this like vision of women as being sexually assertive and hildy was part of that like hildy was definitely formative for me and betty garrett also played a similar character in both take me out to the ball game and um neptune's daughter too so she like sinatra had been typecast she was the aggressive one he was the the kind of shy one so that was their type they do go back to hildy's place and in this scene, we get to see like Hildy and um, Hildy and Chip are starting to make out on the couch when Hildy's roommate, Lucy Schmeler, comes in and she is played by Alice Pierce. And when I was younger, I really didn't like this character. I didn't like them kind of making fun of her for being kind of like, right. I don't know, not as attractive and like having a mm -hmm. weird voice. But like this time when I was watching it again, I also watched another movie she was in, Alice Pierce, The Belle of New York, where she's with Vera Ellen in that one. And like her comedy is very similar in that one. Like it's treated a little more gently, I think, but like, I really appreciate her chops as an actress. I thought she did a great job playing this character. And I don't know. It, I, it felt a little less bad to me than it did when I was a kid for some reason. I don't know why. What do you guys make of Lucy Schmieler? I thought she was actually fantastic. I love okay. like for what she had to do that. She's like, has to be like, sitting around and being like, I am completely oblivious to the fact that you have a man up here and apparently we share a bedroom. So I can't be in it at the same time you are. Yeah. And she's like homesick and she's sneezing all the time. It's like part mm -hmm. of the gag. Yeah. And she wants to do like some kind of nasal lavage or something. And she's like so unsexy. Who, what chick does that in front of a dude anyways? Like <laughs> a dude you don't know, you know, I yeah. just, there is so much, but she like makes it like I, I laughed really hard at this point because okay, I was like, okay. you sold this to me. Nice. Yeah. I thought Alice Pierce is a real, when I saw more work by her, I was like, okay, yeah, she's got, she's got her thing. She does. And I like it. Right. Uh, I read that she was the original Broadway Lucy Schmieler. Oh, was she? she okay. Yeah. But again, that shrill voice. It's like, why do all these women have to have these like, <laughs> Because it's a trope of the time. It's supposed to be funny. Uh, it's uh, I think you're right. It was it is. in some ways Betty Garrett's singing voice, though. To be honest, like I think Betty Garrett's voice is a little bit like that. I don't know from the other films. Yeah, I feel like that might be mm. sort of her voice, or like, or maybe she's more of a comic singer. So I don't know. I see. I don't know. But anyway, um, Lucy uh, uh, Hildy does get Lucy to leave the house to go to a movie theater um, and make everybody at the movie theater sick. And she and Chip start making out again. So there you go. 
Um, I do like that you put in here that how about the bedroom because that's the first thing I noticed was that I'm like, does she? So they're roommates, obviously, but yeah. does that mean that they both sleep in the same bedroom? Well, it is New York, yeah. So I mean, it's possible they both are like we have four more people in that room too. They're just not home, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. Okay, so now we cut over to Symphonic Hall where Gabe finally ends up finding Ivy again. Initially, we just see Ivy practicing ballet with her instructor, Madame Dilyovsky, who is, I never noticed when I was a kid either that this woman is drinking alcohol, like while she's speaking her. It just like went over my head. Hidden alcohol. Hidden yeah. alcohol. <laughs> yep. And through Ivy's like exposition-y conversation with Madame Dilyovsky, we find out that Ivy is from the same hometown as Gabe, Meadowville, Indiana. And she's trying to hide from her parents that she is working as a cooch dancer at night. So all I could find on cooch dancer on the internet, the Merriam-Webster dictionary says it is a dance performed by women that was once common in carnivals and fairs and marked by a sinuous and often suggestive twisting and shaking of the torso and limbs, which we will see this later in the movie. So Gabe finds Ivy then, and at first he kind of tries to nag her, like, like for lack of any other better term. He said, like they were nagging chicks in the forties, man. He said, I thought I'd give some lucky little chick a break. If you play your cards right, it could be you. And she is not going for that shit at all. She like says, go away, you sailor, you. And and then he decides that he's going to be honest. And he tells her that he's been looking for her all day and tells her he's just like this, like small town dude from Meadowville. And he knows that a native New Yorker like her wouldn't be interested in him. And this gets her attention because not only like, is she flattered that she, he was looking for her all day, but she's in fact not a native New Yorker. She is also from Meadowville and he, she, he's perceiving her as this like glamorous, sophisticated celebrity. Did, did you, did you guys buy her being into him? Uh, yeah. I think she appreciates when he's like finally honest with her and mm -hmm. not like throwing her some bullshit lines and play your cards. Right. It could be you. I like yeah. that. She stands up for herself. It's like, she's like, get out of here. Um, and yeah, that he's from Meadowville. If Meadowville is so damn small, but it's 18,000 people. It's 18,000 people though. So I thought of this too. If it's so small, why wouldn't he know her already? But it's eight, uh -huh. but think about Lake Geneva is 5,000 some people, right? I didn't yeah. know everybody in Lake Geneva. There were different high schools. So 18,000 is like three times as big. So what do you I mean buy. there were different high schools. There was one high school. Well, and okay, then if you live there were not different. In Geneva yeah, but there are people who <laughs> sort of live near Geneva. You know what I'm saying now? There, okay, there's I one house in Lake Geneva, but like the surrounding areas, maybe together, there were different high schools, right? Right. 18,000 okay. people, I could buy them not knowing each other. Plus, there's probably an age difference, maybe. So, uh, Obviously. Um, and and there's a little over 8,000 people now in our hometown. Oh, okay. okay. When I was been, growing up, there were 5,000. So. I, I know. Same, same. But okay. at one point, the signs changed, and all of a sudden, there were 8,000 people. So, What the hell? I know. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not 18,000 yet, though. No. <laughs> So now I'm going to play just a little bit like from their song, just because I want because other I couldn't find really clips of like just Gene Kelly talking and like Vera Ellen just talking. So for lack of anything better, because most of the time they're dancing, I'm going to play this song, which was not my favorite song. Put it that way. But we're going to play just a little. Well, tell me more about this place, Meadowville. You really want to hear about it? Yes. Well... There's not much to tell about my hometown. Life is easy and the tempo slow. But if you really want to find what's in it, you'll learn in a minute 
All you have to know Let's go Come walking with me I want you to see our main street You'll know the whole town By just walking down our main street There's the corner where the boys hang out As each girl goes by They rate her Whistle and try to date her later Baby, are you going steady? All right, so you get the general idea. This is like a small-town nostalgia song. And what's interesting about this is that, like, the Red Hot and Blue book said that in the golden age of musicals, there were basically two strains of American musicals. There was one that was, like, the urban musical and one that was, like, the nostalgia for small towns and rural areas musical. And this is, like, injecting just a little bit of that rural small-town musical into a urban musical. So I found that interesting. Like their yeah, characters kind of represent a small town and then this number also does. What do you guys think mm. of this number? I liked this number. Really? Okay. I did. In this movie, there are so many just like love at first sights that seem ridiculous. But this one made it more realistic. It like put it, they put them as something that they have in common. It it was like a like a very adorable little love song between them, and it builds the characters. You learn a lot about the characters and who the people those these two people are. Sophia, any thoughts on it? It was neither here nor there for me. I okay. thought it. I didn't quite. I, at one point, I thought I'm like, if you're gonna dance with Vera Ellen, why would you do such a simple dance? But yeah. that was kind of the point, and yeah. this is a sweet little number. And um, to be fair, they dance like more later, but they yeah. do yeah. exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, so for me, I always found this one to be kind of snoozeville, like even though Gene Kelly is super hot, like and Vera Ellen is awesome. But like, I always found this one to be kind of boring. But and Gene Kelly actually said that it's one of his two disappointments with the film. He didn't feel like this one came alive. But um, yeah, I'll tell the late other disappointment later. I, but Sybil, I appreciate what you say about it. Yeah. I do think that it does give them a commonality and definitely establishes their relationship is more than just I saw a pretty girl on a poster. So after this number, Madame Dilyovska comes back and she's all like, or Dilyovsky, I can't remember how to pronounce her name, whatever. She comes back and she's like, get out of here, sailor, blah, blah, blah. And like Vera Ellen's telling her, her she's going to go on a date with him that night. And they, they agree that they're going to meet at 830, but then they have to come back and be like, where, where are we meeting? Which I like because some movies people say that they're going to meet at 830 and they never say where they're going to meet. But in this movie, we deal with this problem. Nobody gives phone numbers either. They're just like, call yeah. me. Okay. Yeah. And they just leave. You're like, what, how, how are you going to know? Exactly. So yeah, then he, they, they established they're going to meet on the top of the empire state building. And she says something like, isn't that awfully high? And then he says, it won't seem high to me. I'm in the clouds right now. And I just want to say that this dialogue is very similar to a piece of dialogue in Singing in the Rain. Um, before he sings Singing in the Rain, he's leaving um, Debbie Reynolds behind. And he says, for me, the sun is shining everywhere, even though it's raining. So I was like, ah, I see the Comden and Green signature there. In that <laughs> nice. And then we again, we get the weird dance teacher, for some reason, threatening Ivy that she better get to work tonight at Coney Island or she won't get her fees. Like, is this woman like this with all her dance students? Is she like falling <laughs> around? So, so bizarre. confused by who this lady is and what the hell is going on. Yeah. It is very weird, Sybil. The more I think about it, it doesn't. this doesn't make much sense. But anyway, 
Um, Ivy is given a deadline of 11.30. She better leave to go to Coney Island to do her cooch dancing. Now we are on the top of the Empire State Building, and we have first a scene um, that takes place between Chip and Hildy. Chip is at first sightseeing through a telescope, and he's enjoying telling Hildy about all the things he's seen. And then he says, I should have come up here much earlier. I wasted my whole day away, which is exactly what you want to hear from a dude who might have just had sex with you, right? Right. Totally. I mean, he is he is really good with the ladies. <laughs> so Hildy's feeling rejected. Chip finally notices that she's feeling rejected. He throws his uh, guidebook off the side of the building, probably killing somebody. Killing everyone below. Totally. I was like, no. <laughs> i'm glad we all thought that i'm like and there's a bunch of dead people now fortunately this was not filmed on the actual top of the empire state building so nobody died um and then then he sings with hildy his love song with hildy which is you're awful and it's kind of this interesting wordplay song where he says you're awful and she's upset but then he says you're awful nice to look at awful good to be with things like that and like you're nothing Nothing if not charming. So it's like she keeps getting a little offended and then being like, oh, he really means it in a good way. And that's the whole theme of the whole song. And then she sings verses like that at the end of the song, too. So it's a duet. Um, how about this song? How did this one strike you guys? I like this song, too. It was very corny and it felt like, um, I mean, it had like a lot of the feel of like, I don't know, of mu- like musicals of that era, right? It has that like, you know, back and forth. And also I love the... I love the lyrics on this one. Somebody actually thought about the lyrics mm-hmm. and what the lyrics were doing to make this couple, essentially, who is, in my opinion, not a couple yet, kind of maybe like show emotion towards each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you do get more of the Sinatra voice in this one. You get mm-hmm. He gets to expand his singing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sinatra really is wasted in this film. I mean, then you watch Anchors Away and he's singing way too much. So... <laughs> I mean, that's what I think. I mean, I definitely want to say, like, this movie is two times more gay than Anchors Away, though. <laughs> okay, you got to explain that. You can't just throw that out to the audience. <laughs> so, okay, so I wound up watching Anchors Away merely because if you look at the poster for this film, it has a huge slogan on it that says, two times more gay than Anchors Away. And I yep. was like, well, that's a film I got to see. <laughs> So, I mean, and I watched Anchors Away and I'm like, I don't know if On the Town is more gay, but I mean, maybe. Is it two times more gay? I don't know. I don't know. Thank you, Sybil. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We'll we'll talk. I think you have that in your double feature. So we'll talk about it a little more later. But yeah, like, I feel like he's not, Sinatra's not wasted. He's just not the main character. You know, like, this is more about the dancing. This is more highlighting Gene Kelly and Vera Ellen's dancing. Great. I mean, the purpose is not necessarily to have the songs be a highlight. But I like the My Place song. I think he's fun in that one, too. So there you go. There we go. All right. And I like Hildy's costume in this sequence. She's got this little yellow jacket. She's got this yellow, white, and black striped dress. And then she has this like silver butterfly hair clip and these silver pins on her jacket. It's kind of a cute little outfit. It's pretty. Yeah. Uh, I felt that the outfit was in some way, I love costuming, remember, uh, is some way is supposed to mirror the f- fact that she's a cab driver. hundred yes. yep. percent. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yep. Yeah. Cause it's yellow. It's a yellow cab. Yeah. And, and, and checkered and black and, you know, yellow and black and yeah. Yeah. And then we've got Ann Miller comes in with her fabulous costume. She's got this off the shoulder red dress that she's wearing. Also great. 
And then Gabe arrives, but not with Ivy yet. And then we have this like super absurd scene. So how did the cops find them on top of the Empire State Building? I have no fucking idea. And then, and then they're like hiding Ozzy from the cops by like dangling him over the side of the building. Okay? I was waiting for him to go and kill some people too. So, you know. Jeez, Wait, what? <laughs> I was oh, waiting for him to, to drop him to go kill oh, some people yeah. too. I got you. I got you. And then like, Okay, the professor's with them, I think. How would he not notice Ann Miller? Because, like, she's always at the museum. And then, like, the boss of the cab driver's there. And how would he not notice her just because she has glasses on? Like, what the fuck is going on with Clark this Clark Kent style. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. this whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah. And not needed in any way. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's weird. It's a weird, it's one of those weird, like, comic slapsticky scenes it's even got one of those scenes where like all the people stick their heads around the side of a building and they're all lined up perfectly heading. Yep. you know what i'm yes. talking about yep. how do people even yes. do that i want to do that someday it looks like so much fun anyway anyway the cops arrive we have this whole thing and then that turns into nothing and then ivy actually does show up and i like this part too the girls the other girls talk to each other they know that Miss Turnstiles isn't a big deal, but they kind of make this little agreement to pretend that she is for the guy's sakes. Also for her sake. I think that they oh, yeah. also did it for sure. Ivy's sake as well to like make her like important and somebody. And let me put in too that these girls talking together is probably the only reason this movie might. Pa- oh, wait, no, it passes the Bechdel test when she talks to Madame Jeliowski too. Okay. So technically this movie passes the Bechdel <laughs> test. That awesome conversation. Well, I mean, there are movies that don't pass the Bechdel test getting made in the last 10 years. So that's all I got to say about it. (laughs) All right. So then we get Ivy arrives and we get the on the town number, which was, again, not in the original musical. And it's got this like crazy about the Navy part stuck in the middle of it, where the guys are pretending that they really miss being on the boat. And I feel like World War II is already over. So why was this in there? What do you guys think? I I don't know. I think it's a weird number. Yeah, I, I was like, nope. And I'm like, I just need to get to the end of this at this point. Like, let's just get there. Yeah, I guess I don't like the idea of them. They're having the best time with their, you know, they're all together now. They're having fun, but they're dreaming about being back on the boat. It's like, yeah. that seems silly. I wonder and- if this is like sir, for the Navy's sake that they let them use the boat or some shit. You know what I mean? And like, maybe, maybe they're being like, maybe. oh, well, we've been off the boat. You have 24 hours. That's it. You're not being like, yeah. I can't wait to be back on that boat again for like, yeah. you know, three months. I guess it could have been a joke too, like a parody of really liking being in the Navy. Like, I don't know, something like that. Cause he says he really likes the chow. I don't think anyone I've ever heard of from the military was like, Oh, the food is good. So maybe it's meant to be tongue in cheek too. I suppose. I don't know. Anyway, it's weird. I didn't like that part, but the on the town part itself, I like. No, I I felt it was really a week. I thought it was just really weak. I actually thought it was just thrown in there to like get a song in named by the musical. Yeah, but I like they're all like dancing together finally. I like that. I like the completion of them all being together, like dancing arm in arm. I dig it. I okay. think it has good energy. I can get behind that. Yeah, and I can get, get behind that see, too. And you get to see the ladies in three different costumes dancing together. I always like a movie where you get like three different costumes from from women that are really nice looking. Yes, they're all their dresses are very pretty. I agree. Costume actually costuming on this is very good, period, for all of the women. Like they had really good costumes. All right, so Now we're going to begin the spoiler section of the movie. So if you do not want the ending spoiled for you, please go and watch On the Town and come back to us. And if you don't care, hang out with us now. Okay, so they all go nightclubbing. And um, the the little time scroll says 930, 
They're at a club and Gabe tries to get into the club using Miss Turnstile's name as, you know, their entrance. And of course the club guy has not heard of her. So Claire goes and bribes a waiter to get them a table and make a fuss about Ivy. And then eventually has them send over champagne, which I thought that was really a sweet character touch. Yeah, totally. Also, I want to say that the table they're given is still the worst table. (laughs) Yes. Yep. It's literally like it is the worst table that you can give somebody Mm -hmm. intentionally. So it's by the kitchen door where the kitchen door bangs you. And like they don't talk about it, but it's 100% like in the movie for a reason to be like, I mean, thanks for the tip and all, but you're still nobody. So you get by the bathroom. Yeah. And like the people dancing in the floor show, like they're spinning this woman and they literally have to duck because she's like spinning over their heads. Yes. Yeah. They're right. They're right by the band, right up by the band, the kitchen door swinging open. It's the exit and entrance for the dancers. It's the worst spot. Yes. And I appreciated the direction on that very much. Yeah. But the guys are so happy and like that's right, yeah. And they don't yeah. notice. And they make other kind of jokes about New York clubbing. I noticed too, like they have um these beers that look like they're just water, right? right. <laughs> all, all foam, all froth, yeah. like yeah. no. And then yeah. and then Chip's asking what else, what other drinks they have, and the waiter's like listing off the super complicated sounding drink, which probably today doesn't sound complicated, but back in 1940s, I bet it was with all these weird. Yeah, he's supposed to just be like Tom Collins. Right. He's supposed to be like give easy beverages, but like they're all very complicated. And he's like, whoa, mixologist. Hildy's like, he'll have a beer. It yeah. yeah. Cute. I love that comment. <laughs> She's hilarious. And then they've got one more like joke they make about the nightclub. They go to a couple different nightclubs and every nightclub has like a number at the end that's exactly the same, except they change the name of the review. It's like, that's all there is, folks. So goodbye to you. We Wait. hope you enjoyed our little Copacabana review or something. Right. Okay. So wait, I, I think I missed something. Did they go to different clubs? I thought yeah. it was the same yeah. club. They just no, had the they same. Di- no, no. Yeah. Oh, they, had the Cabana, they had the Copacabana yep. review, the Dixieland review, and then the Shanghai review. And yep. I'm pretty sure that they didn't put anybody in blackface or brownface. No, I double checked. I checked real hard. I fa- I like slowed down. Yeah. I, I made the screen bigger. Cause I was like, I was like, these are really black people, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm always okay. horrified. Like really I'm Asian people. People. Same, 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 same. I I'm thought all, the same thing. I was like, wait a minute. And I'm like, I think we're good. I think we're good. We yeah, were, we're yeah. solid. We're solid. I double checked. We're yeah. good. Yeah. I think we made it through a whole movie from the 1940s without somebody doing that. So thank God. Yeah. Well, yeah. And now that I know specifically that this was a, such a diverse cast on stage. Yeah. You know, I can see why also maybe you might have diverse, add some diversity here. Yeah. It, it is New York for God's yeah. sake. I mean, yeah. you know. And Gene Kelly was also like a pretty like progressive dude, like apparently. Like he was like hanging out with like black actors in real life. Like he and his brother in their vaudeville days actually worked on the Cab Calloway's show. And Lena Horne was one of like the regular visitors to his house. So he was a he was a, awesome. he was he was a good dude for his era. So cool, cool. So yeah, we didn't have like anything terrible there, which is good because I've seen movies from exactly the same year that have just little cringy things. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay. So let's see. So we see Gabe and Ivy are finally left alone at the table. They're talking together. They're talking about how they don't, you know, they, they don't want to get involved because it's only one day, but then they obviously are really into each other. They get bumped by the door and this causes Gabe to lean in and kiss her. And he, and then later he tells Ivy that he does want to see her again. This isn't just a one day thing. Um, then Though when he's telling her this, Ivy realizes it's 1130 and she has to go to Coney Island. And then Gabe at the same time gets the fucking knuckleheaded idea that he's going to go and show Ivy off to these like other Navy dudes. He Mm -hmm. leaves her for a minute 
while she's trying to talk to him and she runs off to Coney Island and this will come Which in. She can apparently get to in three seconds. Okay. <laughs> and, and leave a note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And this, and this, this comes to be a factor later though, that he's trying to break to these Navy dudes. I don't love this about his character. That he's trying to show off Ivy like a trophy, but I yeah. could totally believe that he would. Yeah, of course. Like, yeah. I mean, I like even just like a, a nice dude to just be like, Hey buddies, like, look, I, I got this really nice chick and like, she's hot. Yeah. 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 Anyway, it's like, um, it's his most dude like behavior probably that he engages in, in this movie. So Ivy runs off and the, and the other guys and girls are like, well, let's keep the night going. And they, they decide they're going to get a girl for Gabe. And like, <laughs> Ozzy's like, ask Claire, do you know any girls? And she says, I don't know any girls. <laughs> yeah. It's that. hilarious. You're like, uh, <laughs> it's this little nod back to her saying that she was running after guys before she got into anthropology. <laughs> And then I don't know why Hildy would decide that bringing Lucy out would be a great idea. I don't know. I mean, it's like she she had to know that Lucy was not going to make a good impression. No, I don't know. She's fucking sick. Right. She's a homebody. She doesn't feel good. Let her be home, people. But instead, we Lucy shows up and um, she's sneezing when she shows up. Gabe is like obviously depressed. They don't. Like, okay, this is the part that I didn't like when I was a kid because I was like, right. I identified I more. Like it. I identified more as kind of like an ugly girl when I was growing up. Like, I thought of my, because people called me ugly. So I was like, I was like, I'm definitely a Lucy here, right? And would I get treated like this? And like, I didn't want people to like be, you know, condescending to me, right? He doesn't actually like to her face say anything mean. He's mm-hmm. obviously depressed though. Mm-hmm. He, I think later in the movie, he does like act a little nicer to her, but. It's not great. Like, like there's jokes about how he's hiding her face from these Navy guys who come back to see his date, right? Yeah. And like, I don't, I didn't love it. I don't. I still don't like it. No, I yeah, still don't and like it. Let's be honest. She's not fucking ugly either. She's not fucking ugly. She's got a little weird voice, and she's got a cold. You know. So, um, I think they also make her personality not super appealing, though. She doesn't have like great, like kind of social skills. She doesn't read the room very well. It's fine. But I don't like that making like yeah. her the butt of the joke. That's yeah. it doesn't it still doesn't play for me because yeah. I will always feel like that girl. Always. Oh. No, I'm kidding, not not that dramatic. But I <laughs> but I certainly, you know, often felt like the not desirable girl at the table. Yeah. You know? So it, just, it reminds me of the movie Dogfight a little bit when I think about it. You know, with Lily Taylor and River Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That would be a double feature for just this section of the movie. There you go. Yeah, there you go. But anyway, um, Gabe kind of is depressed after this interaction. He goes off to sit by himself at a bar. And then they do the number, you can count on me, where the guys and the girls try to cheer him up. And Lucy mm-hmm. is part of this number. And mm-hmm. her part of the number is a little weird. Like, she's trying to be, like, super passionate with Gabe. But she's a great performer. Alice Pierce is a great mm-hmm. performer in this section. And she's holding her own as a dancer, too. Um, I like this song. I think it's clever. I like the jokes. I like their camaraderie. I like this time I noticed that the Asian bartender in the background is totally digging it and smiling and laughing the whole time. Um, what do you guys think about this this number? I thought it was cute. I liked it. I like this idea of, yeah, being friends and looked like they were having fun. I liked it. I do too. I like this number as well. I think that it also it it also like bonds the group together, which yeah. is like mm-hmm. as friends and not just like people who like met and are like strangers. 
Yeah. You know, I and I actually do like the lyrics of this as like I think that it, they're clever enough. Many puns, many puns. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As the adding machine once said, you can count on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so after this number, Gabe walks Lucy home and the timestamp says 2:30 and he gives her kind of like a nice speech like I already found the girl for me before I met you. Sorry, I was yeah. a downer. You're going to find your guy. And she, he kisses her on the cheek. So yeah. at this point, he's nice to her, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. I thought that was a, a nice departure. I think if they hadn't had that, I wouldn't have liked it, the movie as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got to give Lucy her respect. Yeah. All right. So any more to say about that? Or should we move on to A Day in New York? Go for A Day in New York. Okay. So A Day in New York is what's called a, Sophia, you might know about this because you're a theater person. This is called a dream ballet section of a musical. Uh, Sure. Have you previously heard of this or studied this? I guess. Okay. (laughs) Like I can't recall at the moment, but yes. Doesn't, I feel like uh, Oklahoma has one too, I think. I don't know. I haven't seen Oklahoma to be honest. Let's talk about the big Lebowski and how it has a dream ballet in it. Oh, I guess Very it does. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, like dream ballets are a completely normal thing to express emotion that, once again, is not per se going to be able to be spoken about easily. Yeah, it's, just, it's basically just referring to an all-dancing section of a musical that doesn't have singing, and it can reflect, like, the themes of a show. So there's a dream ballet in On the Town. There's a dream ballet, of course, in Singing in the Rain, the Broadway melody mm-hmm. section. American in Paris's dream ballet is perfection, like so many of these in Kelly's films, but in other films as well. Anyway, this dream ballet section is filmed with Kelly and Vera Ellen, but then Gene Kelly made the decision to have substitute dancers for the other roles because mm-hmm. he didn't really have the time to train everybody else on ballet dancing. And he said later that he regretted it because audiences like weren't really thrilled that they were different actors. But yeah. for me, it's like, whatever, like it's a dream. Like they can be different people. I'm okay with it. But I feel like, you can't you're telling me uh betty couldn't keep up or or Anne. Well, like it's a, it's maybe a, the guys couldn't but it's a different type of dancing though like like i like, like when i watched it after thinking about that i was like okay is this tap dance is this what they're usually doing this is there's a lot of ballet moves mm-hmm. and I'm like i don't know if it's the same skill set or not it well, was his perfectionism that he was like they're not going to be good enough and i don't want to like right. dumb any of this down either yeah, yeah. that's really true too which I'm okay because with Gene Kelly's They could have done it. They could have held their chops. Would they have been like as good as maybe the dancers he put in? No, but it, it would have been, it would have played differently. It does take, it did take me out. Oh, really? Like, okay. Oh, yeah. As far as like that switch, I was like, oh, that's a bit of a bummer. See, for me, uh, like it kind of does the almost the opposite because it shows me definitively that this is not part of the main plot. This is like his fantasy. Uh, like for, so okay. for me, it worked okay because, yeah, it's like a dream. It doesn't have to be matching everything else. I mean, I was fine with it. There was a second where I was like, huh, that's, that's interesting. They chose not to use the dancers. I'm like, I, I'm like, okay. But like, I didn't care either way, but I did notice when it wasn't them. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I really like, though, the part in there where he dances with Vera Ellen in kind of this red spotlight. I thought that part was quite sexy, quite good dancing between the two of them. I'll tell you something. I noticed it twice in this film with Mr. Uh, Gene Kelly. He it looks like he literally flies, but definitely in this dream, dream, he does it. I think when they're when they're doing the on the town song and they're definitely in this sequence where he 
like is leaping up to a higher part of the stage it's it's a, it's a mm. leap up he looks like he's flying i'm like wait a minute did he make any kind of like movement to like jump there all of a sudden he's just like lifted off and then he lands on the upper platform and i'm like damn that it kind of took my breath away i'm like he just flew he just he just glide glided up on top it was amazing he's amazing I'll have to look for that the next time. Yeah, yeah. find it. You'd be like, he, he can fly. Any more about the dream belly or should we progress to Coney Island? Let's progress to Coney Island, baby. So th- they are now, in, after the dream belly, they're in the bar again. And Gabe runs into Ivy's dance teacher, Madame Dilyovsky. And she's like, he finds out from her where Ivy is. Um, at the same time, the cops have again found them. And they start chasing um, Hildy and the cab all the way to Coney Island. And so we have this obligatory wacky chase scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. I was kind of, I was like, yeah, you chase scene. I thought it was kind of funny. Okay. I'm like, I'm like what this movie needs clearly to like, keep it running is a chase scene. It's a chase scene. (laughs) I was like, yeah, that's what, this is clearly what we're going like. Yep. And like and like they uh they they do the whole thing too. They run into like some fruit stand and they put the awning over them and they put out a sign that says "shave and a haircut" and they actually play the "shave and a haircut" music. I'm like, what the fuck? It's so yeah. corny. That's right. I forgot about it's that. So yeah. corny. It's so corny. Anyway, they get to Cody Island and immediately, pretty much, Gabe sees Ivy on stage in her cooch dancing, which is like this vaguely midi Middle Eastern dance and costume thing going on, like a belly dance sort of. Yeah. I don't know, I don't know what's going on. Um, the cops come, they all go to hide backstage. Gabe tells Ivy that he doesn't care like what she does. He just wanted to find her again. She says that she's from Meadowville. He's happy about this. They embrace a lot of mm-hmm. stuff happens. So we're just going to go through it quickly. Mm-hmm. And then of course, to hide from the cops, everybody gets dressed up in these costumes, these like middle Eastern dance costumes. And of course there's a big joke about the guys like mm-hmm. pretending to be women. And one mm-hmm. of the cops finding them attractive I mean, you have to have this. In, <laughs> it's required for dudes to dress up like chicks in these in these movies at the, this time. Like it's just required. So the the whole like drag act gets like uh, disrupted when Ozzy's pants fall down, and then we have like of course our comical chase through the backstage area, and the men eventually run into the back of the military police van, and they are taken away. And then the cops come and they're going to arrest the women for speeding, stealing a taxi, destroying a dinosaur and disturbing the peace. But now we have Hildy and Claire give these rousing speeches to the crowd. So for this, we're going to do some every rom-com theater. And um, Sophia, you're going to be Claire. Um, Yes. Yes, I'm going to be Hildy. And Sybil, we're going to need you to be the professor. He's only got like one line here. And then we're all going to be the crowd. There's a crowd as well. Okay. Got it. All right. I'm here for it. So I'm professor. I get to say what? (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. okay so without Ready? further without further ado we are now going to have every rom-com theater and your dinosaur why professor you ought to feel proud about that dinosaur what you ought to feel proud that three sailors from the united states navy got off the ship for one day and what did they do were they thirsty for hard liquor No, they were thirsty for culture. Were they running after girls? 
No, they came running to the museum to see your dinosaur. For months out at sea, they were dreaming about your dinosaur. Is it any wonder that seeing it face to face, overcome by emotion, that one of them fell against it and broke it a little? Why, I'll bet if that dinosaur could speak, he'd say what any public-spirited citizen would. For the Navy, any time. And the cab. We didn't steal it. It was my last fare for the day. And the biggest fare this cab company has ever had. $287.50. And why did I keep this fare all day, ladies and gentlemen? Because I know my duty toward the servicemen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right. Woo! There was this one. He was he was just a little fella. A skinny little runt. He kept pestering me and following me around. I couldn't shake him off. And finally, he kind of got under my skin. You would have done the same. He wanted to see the beautiful sights of our beautiful city of New York. And I showed him plenty. And what do you think these boys think now of our New York hospitality? Where's our civic pride? Why, we should have hugged them to our bosoms and said, boys, the town is yours. Yeah. 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 End scene. So I 100% felt that this this right here was where we needed a song. Oh, really? Right here was where we needed a song. Like, this is where, like, you put a song. Because you have a lot, you have the culmination of a lot of stuff happening, right? You have all of his feelings and emotions, and you could have had a big freaking number with like all the people in the background being like, "Yeah," and the crowd like going crazy. Like I was like, "How did they miss this opportunity when we had so many like useless That's songs in this film?" That's interesting because they did have a stage there, even, and all those dancers that could have been right. backup oh dancers. My God. Yeah, okay. I was like, I don't understand how this was missed, except maybe they were just running out of time. Yeah, they needed to finish the show. But I like their rousing speeches. I like them. So the speech does work. The crowd eats it up. Um, the cops end up dropping the charges. And I, they're taking up a collection. I don't know. Is it to pay for the cab? What is it I for? I don't know. It's like, I, that's what I thought. Because clearly we can collect enough money on the streets for the dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the deal is there. But yeah, whatever. And they drive the girls to the Navy Yard to say goodbye the boys and the they, they they find the guys just before they get on the ship. They all kiss each other, and yeah. um, I was like, I'm like, did they give each other their addresses? Or are they going to see each no. other again? I no. I want them. I think my canon, my head canon, is that they are going to see each other again. I think like, the yes. girls become fast friends, but the dudes they never see them again. No, I think they're oh. going to see each other again. Yeah, I totally make it out that they all see each other again. I think Gabe and Ivy will last. I don't know about the other two, but yeah, <laughs> none of them yeah. are lasting. <laughs> Well, the Gabe and Ivy are even from the same hometown. Yeah, so, I, definitely yeah. Gabe and Ivy. Definitely Gabe and Ivy. Yeah, he's he's mm-hmm. gonna be able to find her again for sure. So mm-hmm. we're romantic. I like to here. think somehow they gave them their information. Yeah, yeah. All right. So Sybil says no. Sybil vetoes it. <laughs> Sybil usually does though. <laughs> Sybil has like no romantic bones in her body. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Sybil's here for the fun. She's here for the walls. It's good. It's good. It's true. It's true. All right. So, and then the dock worker, as we said, comes back with his saw. He's, he's still feeling like he's not out of bed yet. And a new <laughs> bunch of soldiers rush out of the boat and start singing New York, New York, which gives it a great circular feeling. I really like yeah. the way it's wrapped. I love that. I love, I actually, I really do love that. I love that. Um, kind of the bookends 
situation to this. All right, so now we're going to do our double feature recommendations. So for my double feature recommendations, two out of the three I'm choosing are the movies that Gene Kelly did with Judy Garland. And the other movie he did with Judy Garland, I'm saving for our episode of the music on The Music Man. So we're going to hear about all of them eventually. <laughs> so the first one is For Me and My Gal, the first film he did in 1942. And I'm recommending this for a few reasons. One, it's also part of it is set during a wartime scenario and it involves eventually the military. So it's thematically relevant. It was actually made in 1942. So it's more of a propaganda film in some ways, although it is set like in the pre-World War I and World War I era, but it's clearly speaking to the moment of World War II. I think they're Judy Garland and Gene Kelly have just like amazing chemistry. Like if you think he has good chemistry in this movie, him and Garland just work together so well, like their emotional, their acting is so good. And then their dancing is and singing is also amazing. So if you haven't seen one of the Gene Kelly, Judy Garland movies yet, check them out. I also think Gene Kelly is just really fucking sexy in this role. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a bad guy in some ways. He's a little bit of a heel. Like, and I, he's kind of good that way. And yeah, Judy Garland kind of like, is the question is, is she going to be able to reform him or not? And they play these vaudevillians who end up working together. And I just really dug it. I didn't expect to love it as much as I did, but I did. And then my second double feature recommendation, this movie is not necessarily good, but it's also amazing. It's really hard to explain. It's The Pirate from 1948. It's directed by Vincent Minnelli. The cinematography is gorgeous. The colors are gorgeous. Gene Kelly is fucking gorgeous in this movie. He's playing an actor who pretends to be a pirate because Judy Garland's character has a thing for pirates. Okay, there's so much that's ridiculous about this movie. The plot is ridiculous. The fact that Judy Garland's playing a character named Manuela is ridiculous. The, the costumes are kind of ridiculous. Everything is over the top. It was kind of meant as a parody, but they it wasn't really clear that it was meant as a parody. So it's, okay. it's just super campy, though. There's a point in the movie where Gene Kelly's wearing these like cut off like shorts and like this like like uh, fucking tank top and like an arm bracelet, like be, pretending to be a pirate. Right. And like it almost the censors almost didn't let his costume by because it was like too sexy. Because he's got too what? much ass, that's why. It, it, and thigh. The thigh in this nice. movie is like off the yes. chart. Okay, but like Sybil, like I feel like you would enjoy this movie just because it's so weird. And it would make All right, an, I'm here an for amazing it. I'm gonna try it. Yeah, it would make an amazing double feature with the pirate movie, which is one of the movies that only you and I have seen. So yeah, so the pirate 1948, you gotta see it. It's just there was somebody found it on TikTok too. There's like a TikTok of like different scenes of Gene Kelly like doing sexy things in the movie there's just one scene where he like is smoking a cigarette he goes to kiss a girl swallows the cigarette and then he spits the cigarette back out when he's done kissing oh, her i feel like i've seen that oh, funny. <laughs> it's so crazy okay so that's my second one and then my third double feature recommendation is an american in paris from 1951 this is also a vincent minnelli film now here's the thing about this movie i don't love the plot Okay, like it's got Gene Kelly's character. There's a perfectly good woman his own age who could he could be with, but he goes after this like really young girl for no apparent reason, played by Leslie Leslie Caron. I don't feel their chemistry, but there are two musical numbers in this movie that are amazing. I Got Rhythm, which he performs with a bunch of children, is such a great scene. He has such great chemistry with these kids. The dancing in that is so great. The singing, like the kids are clearly having an amazing time. Love that. Love that number so much. And then the dream ballet in an American in Paris is gorgeous. Like it's using these beautiful painted backdrops. It like really evokes Paris and it's got the 
beautiful music as well, like the Gershwin music. And it is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen put to film. And the dancing between him and Leslie Caron, who was a ballet dancer, is impeccable as well. The costumes are gorgeous. So great. And there's a reason it won all those Oscars. Again, don't 100% love the plot. I was actually kind of like really angry at the movie for a while, but it really won me over with those numbers. So, yeah. So I chose Brigadoon in no particular order here, friends. Uh, So Brigadoon from 1954. Okay, we did this when I was in college. So I have like fond memories of that. And again, I feel like stage to film stuff is kind of lost there was some stylization that i didn't quite like but overall i there's some songs that are really pretty and i feel like i read that uh gene kelly really wanted to make it you know more ballet and he really worked on that angle for this film it's a fun time then i love 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 singing in the rain from 1952 um yeah, as we've said, this one is the one that seems to stand out and be the longtime favorite of the Gene Kelly. I love um, that, you know, the, the story of like silent films are, you know, yeah. leaving and that silent actress trying to be a talky actress and her <laughs> voice is just, it's the best. It's so funny. I can't, I can't stand, stand him. Stand him. <laughs> <laughs> See? The best. Some incredible dance numbers. Um, Good morning. That number's a lot of fun. Yeah. Singing in the rain. Yeah. So we, great. We rewatched it the other night just like because um, I, I've seen it so many times I didn't really have to, but it, like I was just, it's impeccable. I don't find there's nothing out of place in that whole film. Yeah. Yeah. It's solid. And then I um, watched um, again because I'm familiar with the stage production of Guys and Dolls. I'm like, well, let me check out the film production. And it was fine. Um, I get, uh, uh, I like Brando. I know it wasn't his, there was talk about like him not being a real singer and him having this part, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. I still like Brando. And, um, and uh, I chose it to also see Sinatra again. And I like this Sky Masterson tough guy and, and the Sally Brown, you know, like Salvation Army, good girl getting together. I love those plots. I love that. Like bad boy, good girl storyline nice nice yep it's a fun time uh so i picked in the heights the 2021 musical version uh mostly because i feel that the same the same kind of like like love of new york the love Mm -hmm. of the city okay is there because you know in the heights the film really does show off the city they did a really good job of that Nice. So I picked that because I felt that one of the things that On the Town did was like show off this like love for the city. I think they did a good job. But I like both productions, both the movie and the theater production. I think both are great. Nice. That's great. And actually you think In the Heights is a better musical than Hamilton. Mm -hmm. I know. Crazy, but I think it's true. Uh, then I have Anchors Away because I really just wanted to watch Anchors Away based on the fact that I saw On the Town and I saw the poster. And I really I like Anchors Away okay. Like I didn't like hate it. Um it was a it was fun. Uh it I will not say that On the Town was two times more gay than Anchors Away. But um I will say that watching them together, you can really enjoy have like a, a double header that you can really enjoy. Sinatra playing such a similar character again too. Yeah, you know, it has the same kind of feel. The songs are kind of the same and campy. Like, you know, it's fun. Yeah. Um 
Okay, and I picked finally The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, 1994, which I know sounds strange, but it's, to me, the like the the kind of like production felt the same to me in the sense of like, it's like people journeying to find something in discovery mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it takes place in like a finite amount of time. And I always felt that Priscilla, mm-hmm. like it takes place on a small bus and you're just trying to get somewhere. And so it has that same kind of like, frenetic we have to get stuff done feel to it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, i also think though the costumes in brazil are so much more overblown they have the same color scheme and feel as on the town oh cool so that is why that's the like i know they're a little bit different for the double headers but that's what i would watch it still kind of mystifies me but i'm glad that you found like these these threads to tie these movies together yeah yeah i like that yeah and any chance to get Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. (laughs) 100% true. 100% true. All right. So this has been very fun talking with you guys about this musical. Thank you for showing up today. And further on in the series, we're going to be talking about the music man, Xanadu. Hopefully the animated Beauty and the Beast. Mama Mia, that's what's on our docket right now. And be sure to send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please, if you've enjoyed our work, consider donating to us at buymeacoffee.com slash everyromcom. And thanks so much for listening today, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.